Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I am your host, Dr. Matt Townsend, your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. It's Friday. It's Friday. Oh, Are you okay? Yes. <laughs> Me likey the Friday. It's not really excitement, more of a manic sort of feel. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh-huh. I've almost made it. It's Friday, James. Not that that matters. <sighs> okay, can I just tell you? I got the coolest neighbor on earth. Yesterday during the show, my water heater broke. Started leaking all over. Which one? Uh, water heater number two. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> We're calling it number two. Had a leak. And I get a text from my wife. Our water heater is leaking. What do I do? And I'm like, call the guy that put in water heater number one. Because <laughs> that broke a week ago or a month ago. Anyway, she did what she does, which is so amazing. She calls my neighbor that knows everything. Retired man, Gene Call, engineer. He's fixed everything in my house. <laughs> I honestly think he's my wife's... Uh, Real man. Not like I'm not the real man, but she's... When it comes to, like, manly tasks, mm-hmm. he can take care of those for you. When it comes to manly tasks, she thinks of him first. Then she says, can I call Gene to get <laughs> my approval? And then I'm like, yeah, let's call Gene. So anyway, she called Gene. Gene comes over, says, your water heater's broken. Why don't you go buy a new water heater and I'll put it in for you? Huh. My wife drives down... Buys a water heater. By the way, exactly the other, same as the other one we just bought. Did she throw it up on her shoulder and she walk out of the store? She threw it on her shoulder. Okay. That's what I used to Actually, do. Actually, she tightened her her lifting belt, <laughs> and then she threw it over her shoulder with one arm, brought it home. They're just hollow, so it's conceivable. They're hollow, but they're <laughs> really heavy. And by the time I got home last night, we had a brand new water heater. Nice. For a one-third the cost of... Water heater number one that we put in a year ago. Wow. Oh, not even a year ago. A month ago. It's a good deal. Gene Call, I love you. Thank you for being the man in my family. I need an engineer next door. Honestly. He's fixed my sprinkling system when there was a huge water leak and we lost 10 million gallons of water. Oof. No you, had a pool, you had a pool in the backyard? Actually, no. We just had seepage. Yeah. Yeah. For about a year. That's pretty bad. And then, Sinkhole shows up. Yeah. The water company came to us. And they're like, you seem to have used a lot of water. Have you, guys, have you guys been drinking a lot of water? We're like, no. I had a neighbor across the street that happened to. All of a sudden, yeah, I, I look out the window and like the, 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 the father and the son come sprinting into the front yard with shovels and just start digging into their front yard. You're like, that, that seems sort of odd. Something's weird here. And then they open it up, and you can just see them like gesturing really angrily <laughs> at the ground because the main line from the street had cracked. Oh no way! And and they had it fixed within the day, but they just destroyed their front yard to get to that pipe. So. Have them call Gene. 
We'll, we'll keep that in mind. We've had other flooding issues. He went in, stopped the flood, fixed the pipes, redid the 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 drywall. He's just the man. We had a dishwasher, uh, washer and dryer. We I was sick of because it flooded. I just threw it out of my backyard. Is this enabling your lack of knowledge of these things entirely? Okay, because you could learn these things. I could. He's also the bishop of a congregation at the prison. There you go. So he works at the prison. He's retired. Yeah. I want to be Gene when I grow up. Well, retire. Well, I also have to go get an engineering degree oh, and then well, grow some brains. There's that part. <laughs> <sighs> anyway, anything going on in the news? More on the German wings. Did you call me a moron? 95-25. Oh, it just just keeps getting... Keeps going. Airlines were reassessing their safety policies Thursday. As investigators said, the German wings co-pilot had locked his colleague out of the cockpit uh, and and flew the plane into the side of the mountain, obviously, as we know, know now in the French Alps. Norwegian Air, EasyJet Air, and Air Canada have all announced that they will change their policies and require two crew members to be in the cockpit at all times. That's the U.S. policy anyway, right? So if the pilot or co-pilot leaves, a stewardess or somebody else steps in. And I guess the stewardess that doesn't necessarily know how to fly a plane would still be there to make sure that if he passed out, we could unlock the door. The That or the idea that the person isn't going to do something with somebody sitting there. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. By the way, there is a, some hope because when the door was locked, no one was getting in that door. So that tells you that these doors that are we spent so much money securing, that actually works. You know what I mean? We've created a door right. that apparently you can't break down. It says uh, that more they expect more airlines across the globe to change these policies as they start to see the flaw in the way that works. Yeah, one thing. What what else was in the story? Because I'm really worried about how we're pushing on the concept of depression. It goes on. Uh, German police last night searched the German wing co-pilot Andreas Lubitz's apartment in Dusseldorf, Germany, in the home he shared with his parents, uh, removing boxes and possessions and what one investigator called potentially a significant clue that will be taken for testing, according to the BBC. Hmm. German prosecutors later announced that they found medical documents of the 27-year-old's home that indicate an existing illness and appropriate medical treatment. Germans build newspaper reports that he had a serious depressive episode six years ago, citing internal Lufwanza documents. Hmm. Prosecutors said that they found a torn-up stick note. I imagine a sticky yeah, note yeah. of some kind, post-it note, uh, signed by the co-pilot. It's signing him off work on the day of the Alps crash. It was huh. torn up, discarded, according to the BBC. No suicide note or claim of responsibility was found. <sighs> so maybe he was having second thoughts of going in or... He, yeah. He had some note, you know, getting him out of work, but he didn't use it and went to work. But so one of the things he had depression, apparently, maybe some anxiety. But let's be real that 20 percent of the population have depression and they're not going to do this. The the, uh, the airline also said that he passed all tests. Yeah. You know, any, any in, he the, I, I guess there was a point several years ago where he had to retake some tests because depression or something yeah. of that nature. But nothing currently, nothing of the testing he's done recently to show that there was any problems. Wow. And again, let's be careful. There's a lot of people with depression and we're throwing it out there like depression was the cause of this. But this would be this would be kind of manic, extreme depression. This isn't your everyday form of depression. But they're also now starting to say we probably need better mental health evaluation and reporting on pilots that have hundreds of people under their care. 
You know, they they, they go have physicals measure. every year, but we probably need you know mental health clearing and better testing and. A uh, more data suggests that the plane was on autopilot. The autopilot was manually reset to take the aircraft down to 96 feet. Yeah. Uh, according to, it's called Flight Radar 24, a website that tracks aviation data. The website surmised that 96 feet was the lowest altitude setting the system would accept. The changes were made uh, just before the plane began a steep descent that lasted more than eight minutes. The aircraft hit the mountainside. Wow. Blah, 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 blah. And apparently it also had to be turned off. Because at some point the autopilot would have – so it flew autopilot for a while. But apparently right near before hitting, it would have had to have been turned off or the plane would have corrected. So he had to somehow – Purposely do that. Turn so. that off. Ah, oh, it's sad. Sad. The crazy world we live in, folks. Uh, coming up, have you been watching the NCAA tournament? Well, what about the idea of paying college athletes? You know, this is big business. The universities are making millions. The coaches of these teams are making millions. Everyone's making money except the athletes. What if I told you that economists are now recommending that we pay college athletes? We're going to have a discussion about that. Alan Sanderson, the author of an article on this subject and an economist, is going to be joining us Should we be paying our college athletes? That's up next on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody. That's CBS College Basketball's theme. Tell me this doesn't bring back memories. Oh, playing with my Nerf ball in my bedroom like like 10 years ago, no, 35 years ago, hooping it up. Oh, man, those were the days. Ralph Sampson. I pretended to be Ralph Sampson. A little hook shot. We all love college, you know, athletics. Come on. It's huge business. And uh, we all know that. There's some big money going on there. And we, all, we always have believed that there's just power and it's important that we teach these kids character. You know, we don't pay them to go play. They're there to get, an, they're there to get their education. That's pay enough. Well, that probably made sense many, many years ago before basketball or football was a multi, multi-million dollar enterprise for every university. And obviously not every university is making a ton of money at this. But you know what? There seems to be a lot of money in this sport. And yet there are still athletes that at times, you know, they can't even make their meet their needs. So according to uh, our next guest, Alan Sanderson, he's a senior lecturer in the Department of Economics at the University of Chicago. And he's written an article all about recommending paying college athletes. Uh, it's it's an important discussion, and I'm so excited to have him. Dr. Alan Sanderson, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Oh, I'm glad to do it. So good to have you. Really, I feel like uh, we, we need some insight here. In a weird way, it seems obvious that these uh, some some of the most basic needs of these college athletes should be met, and yet we have a really awkward 
system. We can't pay the kids because they're students, so they also don't fall under certain labor laws. Talk to us about really why are we – what's going on? Why is it that a football coach can make millions of dollars but the athlete that's in college can't make anything? Well, um, yeah, glad to chat about that a little. Uh, in addition to being a uh, faculty member at the University of Chicago, I'm also a BYU graduate. That's right. That's anyway, right. I'm going to throw that in. That's good. Um, in, in part, the term student-athlete was coined by a Big Ten commissioner at one point, Walter Byers, and it was really done for one particular reason. It isn't the feel-good student-athlete or scholar-athlete, which is a real joke, but by by having these guys classified as students, it means they're not subject to labor laws. They're not subject to a lot of other uh, restrictions that, that an institution would have. So they can pretty much be taken advantage of if, if mm. the institution or the NCA wants to do that. The reason the coaches make so much money is because, in fact, <laughs> that they are said they are employees, uh, and if you wanted to fix their salaries, uh, 15 minutes later, you'd be in court uh, right. with their attorney. Uh, so uh, the student-athlete doesn't have that uh, that option, although a number of court cases will probably test that very sorely uh, in the next uh, few years. Yeah, so so what's, what you're saying is we're on the verge, the cusp of a lot of probably lawsuits that are going to start testing some of these rights of a college student to, to maybe be paid. Yeah. I, I, in fact, don't think college athletics will look anything five years from now, 10 years from now, will not look anything like it looks today or has for the last 50 years. Huh. I mean, there, there's three big things. Uh, one, Ed O'Bannon, who was a former basketball player at UCLA yeah. and then, uh, in, in the NBA, uh, won his suit. It's on appeal, but they'll, they'll win, and the NCAA will lose. Uh, and this is against the video manufacturers, that right. uh, game manufacturers who have his image. And it's when you you sign a very lengthy contract when you um, you become a, a student athlete, and one says that the NCA basically owns the right to your image for the rest of your life. <laughs> uh, and but that's now that's going to go by the wayside. That costs the NCA a little money. Um, the Northwestern football players uh, who had a petition uh, for the National Labor Relations Board, which they won, saying that the primary affiliation with them and Northwestern is not as a student, but in fact as an employee. Hmm. And they won. Northwestern is appealing it. They're going to lose. They know they're going to lose, but they just have to appeal it. Uh, what does that mean? It means that the university is potentially a lot more vulnerable for things like medical or concussions. Oh, that's or workman's true. Com- workman's compensation. That's expensive. It's also complicated because of a lot of state laws. The third one that's out there, the third shoe, and if this one drops, then it's over for the NCA. That's the labor lawyer Jeff Kessler will have a class action suit saying that, in fact, the NCAA not only establishes this is the payment, room and board, tuition, fees, books, that's the grant and aid, but, in fact, it's a violation of the Sherman antitrust law because they cap it. There's a cap. They they unilaterally set that. You can't set arbitrarily or unilaterally set the coach's salaries because you'd be hauled into court immediately. Right. 
But if Kessler wins, then that's over for the NCAA. Uh, they would move back to just being a record-keeping uh, organization. So this is a this is a complicated situation. I mean, a lot of people are like, just pay them. But if you pay them, they become employees. Employees then get other benefits, health care mm-hmm. benefits for life. I mean, I'm assuming if your injury took place during your health, I mean, I guess you'd be injured on the job. Um, yeah. Yeah. So they really become basically paid employees for their play, mm-hmm. which yeah. um, it, it opens up a huge can of worms. But Alan, I guess in your in your estimation, as an economist, somebody who's studied this, researched this, you believe they really need to be paying them. Well, I, I mean, in part, it's a, it's an economic issue. Every uh, for all. All practical purposes, these guys are employees, right? Uh, and, and the coach, who's their boss, uh, sets, you know, basically their 168-hour-a-week schedule. Uh, yeah. That's how many hours you've got, and he he wants 60 of them. And uh, so, for all practical purposes, they're, they're employees. And again, we we have, you know, and again, I have with BYU, you know, follow the the, the sports, uh, you know, the the myths and the love affair and the emotional attachments and whatever. Yeah. But it's, uh, as you started out uh, right at the top of your show, saying it's a huge business. Yes, it is. Um, in, in 1984, in inflation-adjusted dollars, uh, CBS paid the NCAA $12 million to broadcast March Madness. Okay, $12 oh. million. This year, it's $800 million. Holy cow. To, to, to broadcast... What three weeks of basketball? Well, that's right, and it it has you know at, at twelve million dollars, eh, you know that's not a whole lot of money as these things go, and who cares? But when it's eight hundred million dollars, uh, somebody cares, yeah. and uh, that's going to the coaches, it's going to the institutions, the athletic directors, it's just not going to the athletes. Well, that, that's what I'm wondering: is out of eight hundred million dollars, do you have any idea what percentage? actually trickles down to the athlete? Oh, not much more other than the souvenir cap and T-shirt. <laughs> yeah, the free uh, gear. Yeah, from they the, get lots yeah, of from, gear. Yeah, from the, from the tournament. No, it, it's it's just become gross exploitation. And the the other thing, which, you know, and, and again, I will be very sensitive to it as well. If you're watching March Madness, you can watch Kentucky play, you know, whoever. Uh, everybody out on the court's black. Mm-hmm. And so the guys who are really putting in the long hours to entertain all of this uh, are young black males from, you know, largely inner city neighborhoods. And uh, they're the ones, uh, men's basketball players and, and football players, who are the most exploited. Yeah. And, 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 so, and But I guess we, so used to, has, we used to just say that, well, yeah, but they're getting an education. Yeah, well, they're not getting an education. I mean, that's a joke. Uh, because there, there's no way they can have a, a meaningful, you know, educational experience while they're working sixty hours. Of, yeah, yeah, and you get respected institutions, you know, that we normally would think of, or these are, you know, the, the cream of the crop in terms of academic institutions like uh, UNC, University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, right? Has come out for the last twenty years. They've had these fake bogus or paper courses, thirty one hundred. Students went through there, and more than half of them were, were football players, mm-hmm. African American football players. Courses never met; you just automatically, you know, you got an A, and that helps offset the D yeah. somewhere else. And they're learning. So I, I saw, re- I saw reports somewhere they're learning languages that 
no one ever knows. No one ever can speak yeah. like Swahili or yeah, yeah, yeah John Oliver's yeah, the, John Oliver's yeah, work. YouTube is very, very, very funny uh, and, and and tragic. So it really is the other, the, exploitation. The other yeah, and, and the other – most of these programs – I mean the, there are certainly the Ohio States and the Texas and, and so forth. But most of these uh, big programs lose money for their institutions, and they're kept afloat by uh, large fees transferred from the rest of the student body to support men's basketball and, and football programs uh, and, and coaches. Yeah. Uh, I mean that, that right there though, Alan, is really – that probably would blow people's mind. I think in your article you say one in six NCAA Division One teams are profitable. Yeah. So so then they're really dragging funds from every other mm-hmm. area, and, and but everyone's argument is always that well, profitable or not, this you know having a program brings in the alumni to invest money. It brings in. You know, fan base, it also draws more people to the university. So it's more of a PR effort, but they're really stealing from the scholarly side and giving it to the athletic side. Yeah, in addition, the, the, the evidence is pretty mixed, or in some cases, does this bring in more alumni contributions? Does it bring in better students? Uh, the evidence is pretty sketchy there. In yeah. fact, one of the best pieces done was done by Devin Pope, who's a faculty member at the University of Chicago, but also a BYU graduate. Oh, uh, really? He's an econo- yeah. economist at BYU. Uh, actually, Devin's brother, uh, Nolan, will be my TA for our courses starting oh, great. on the economics of sports. Um, yeah, that, that um, where, where, I'm sorry, where I was going. So it's draining money. Most of these, most of these lose money. So they're they're really taking money away, even from non-revenue sports, because so much of it has to go to support this this proposition for which the university directly loses money and indirectly doesn't get that much in terms of alumni contributions or, or better students. Mm. We uh, Let's take a break, Alan. I want to come back and, and get into some more of this. Like how, how should we handle this? What would, what, how should this roll out? What happens if we get kind of rid of the amateur, amateur status of these student athletes? Uh, more, more discussion. We're going to try to understand maybe the myth and maybe the realities around uh, – Pay for play sports. The the college athlete. Um, are they being exploited? We're talking about it. Alan Sanderson uh, is joining us. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. That's uh, One Shining Moment, Teddy Pendergrass. That's the uh, the montage music when we're putting together the great montage reels from college sports. You know, it's a, it's an interesting thing. We, we, we hear about these athletes, the professional athlete signing million-dollar deals. We hear about the coaches in the NCAA signing multi-million-dollar deals. Uh, we also hear about the brand, like the uh, the apparel and the deals on jerseys, and how much money is being made. And yet, we also hear the story about the student athlete that 
you know, might barely have enough money to eat. And yet living, you know, working 60 hour weeks, still trying to get their education. Many of them minorities from inner city schools with this is the dream, right? This is the hope. They finally get their shot. Is it fair that they're not being compensated? And is it does it make sense? And according to some economists, it probably doesn't. And and those that have actually researched it, got in uh, and understood, understand what's going on behind the scenes. There's probably some myths we need to debunk. We've asked Alan Sanderson to join us. Alan is uh, on faculty. He's a senior lecturer in the Department of Economics at the University of Chicago. He also serves as on the editorial board of various journals, Journals of Sports Economics, Journal of Political Economy, Journal of Business, Journal of Law and Economics. He's well-read, well-researched, and uh, wrote a wonderful article uh, titled, Economists Recommend Paying College Athletes. He also happens to be a BYU alum. Alan Sanderson, welcome back to the show. Hey, welcome back. Good to have you. And so some more – so some of the myths are most of these colleges aren't breaking even in their sports department. One in six might be. They're probably borrowing money from other sources on the university. There seems to be some uh, – the, the, some, the jury might still be out on whether this is actually providing – enough benefit in drawing people to the university and building brand. I mean, a lot of times too, Alan, sometimes athletic scandals create major brand problems like for Penn state and, you know, Miami and some of those universities that have really had some issues. Yeah, no, no, very definitely. It's, uh, there's, uh, I mean, the, you look at the you know the Heisman Trophy winners over the last ten years, you know from Reggie Bush to James Winston, you know to Johnny Manziel. There, there are a lot of sort of tainting going on, mm-hmm. uh, and, and and again the the big one being Penn State, on the just you know horrendous side, UNC on the the academic fraud side. Why don't I, is there too much political pressure to keep it alive? Well, there, there's, uh, yeah, there's a lot of pressure. There's also a lot of money in it, yeah. uh, and not for the student athlete, but there's certainly a lot of money in it for the coaches. There's a lot of money for the for the NCA. Uh, everybody benefits from this, except uh, you know the, the kids who are out on the out on the field. Uh, the, the other beneficiary here, in terms of keeping it going, and, and you know, make no bones about it, is the National Football League and the National Basketball Association. Because the restrictions are, say, for the in the NFL, you have to be out of high school for three years, which right. means you've got to go to college for three years. Uh, and the NBA, it's one year. And David Stern, the former commissioner, and Adam Silver, the the current commissioner, want that moved to two years. Huh. Uh, and so you're just exploiting these kids. You know, there, there's no reason. Uh, that you know, say even a, a Jabari Parker, uh, mm-hmm. who uh, you know, to to pick a a name familiar to you and and to me, went to the to the ward local ward here in Chicago. Oh, really? Uh, you know, there, there's no reason why he couldn't have just gone to the NBA uh, right out of high school. Yeah, he would have been a lottery pick. But no, he has to he has to have one year of indentured servitude. <laughs> uh, and, and certainly, the the Kentucky starting lineup will not be the same Kentucky starting lineup next year because right. those guys will all, all be gone. Uh, so the NBA uh, and the NFL just exploit these kids tremendously. And then uh, I've, I've written locally about it here for the Chicago Tribune with the NFL draft is in Chicago in a couple months. 
and we're sort of celebrating, gee, we're getting this big event. Well, I think we ought to be protesting and not celebrating it because the NBA and the NFL holding these drafts are just basically reducing a kid's employment opportunities from 30 or 32 employers down to one. Hmm. So you're just exploiting them. Uh, even further. So it, there's a lot of people uh, on, on the seamy side of this stuff. And, well, and there's no other occupation, really, when you turn 18. You know, McDonald's can hire you. You, um, you know, Macy's yeah. can hire you. Anybody can hire you. But uh, you're not allowed to play professional sports. Yeah. Um, that, that's uh, unlike ba- in baseball, you can, but not, certainly not in football or basketball. Well, and you end up in the end. Uh, you're also regulated, you're, and the rules are enforced by the NCAA. So we always we always hear of these incredible runs, national championships, and then two, three years later, we find out that there was a scandal. It seems like most of the scandals are after the championships, after the. I mean, so in a weird way, you're also being regulated by one of the greater. Uh, it seems like profiteers of the system. So yeah. it's it's a weird it's a weird convoluted system. Yeah, I mean, there's no other no other country in the world that has that has this kind of system where uh, basically higher education institutions, higher education institutions are are running semi professional uh, sports programs on the side. Nobody does it. Right. We, we just we should just stop it and and let let the NFL and NBA run their minor leagues, development leagues, as Major League Baseball does. Do you ever sense that you could actually run it as a minor league professional team with affiliations to universities and then just let the university sell their like their their logos, their branding, mm-hmm. but it's but see it as a separate entity even if they practiced on facilities that were on campuses and they were just trying to do that to affiliate yeah. affiliate and and market via affiliation, it still seems like it would be a cleaner deal. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a distinct possibility. Certainly, uh, yeah, as I, I would say to my students, you know, on, on April 6th, uh, there are going to be a, a couple basketball games, men's basketball games on, on television on, on April, Monday night, April 6th. One is the Portland Trailblazers pay, play the uh, the Nets. And that's much better basketball than whoever Kentucky is going to play that night. Mm-hmm. But we care much more about the NCA than we care about, you know, the the second tier of of, of the NBA. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a part, it is this affiliation. You know, I'm I'm a Blue Devil at heart. I'm yeah. a, you know I'm a Notre Dame graduate. I, I'm whatever. Um, you know, hook'em horns or you know whatever it can be. And and so that affiliation can can still. Can still exist. In fact, I think once the courts rule uh, against the NCA in, in the Kessler case, and I suspect they will, the governing unit won't be the NCA anymore. It could well be the conferences. Okay. So that the Big Ten conference or Pac-12 or, or whatever could be the governing uh, institution. And I think the courts in the past have been willing to let that go, saying it's not a monopoly in the same way that the NCA is. And if the Big Ten wants to have its rules and affiliations, uh, so be it. As long as the NBA, or excuse me, as long as the Big Ten isn't colluding with the Pac-12 or something right. in, in these decisions. So it may well be that the conference will sort of become the governing organization. And at that point, you have a lot of different models out there. Yeah, it'll probably. Yeah, it'll, it seems like you'll start seeing maybe some more innovation going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does does yeah. it? 
what about Prop 9 and, and the impact that has where they tried to create equality for the female athletes, but the female athletes and their their games don't tend to draw the money as – as much money as probably the football and the and the the basketball does, but then everyone has to have equal scholarships as well. Yeah, yeah. It's a title. You said Prop Nine, the Title Nine. Oh, sorry, yeah, Title Nine. Yeah, exactly. In the 1972 yeah. education amendments. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I suspect women's sports will actually be better if you downsize a lot of, of the men's programs. As they say, most of them currently are losing money, and so they're draining money from the rest of the university, including non-revenue sports for men and, and for women. So if if they stop bleeding money in, in football and men's basketball, then that would, in theory, be money that could flop back to a number, you know, <laughs> the library, uh-huh. uh, for example. Yeah. Uh, but it could also certainly go to non-revenue sports. So I, I actually think uh, women... Uh, women's force will be better off without this. I mean, one of, I, I think, you know, we, we have approximately 30 professional football teams and, and basketball teams and baseball teams at, at the Premier Leagues. There's no sense why we have to have 350 men's basketball programs in college, you know, or 150 men's football programs. Right. Uh, there's just, we've just way overdosed on this. And one of the reasons you overdose on it is because you're not paying the players. Yeah. Uh, you know, the the reason, you know, whoever wins the NCAA is going to, the men's basketball tournament, is going to end up playing about 40 games. 25 years ago, or back you know, further when I was at BYU, a season was sort of 20, 25 games, something mm. like that. Now it's 40. And the reason you expand that is because you're not paying the players. Mm-hmm. If you wanted to expand in the NBA or Major League Baseball or whatever, the players will say, oh, sure, that's fine. We'll be glad to play a few more games or another, confer- or another tournament here or whatever. We just want half the money. Yeah, and, and at that point, the league says, "Well, it's not worth it to us if you get half for us to expand the schedule." But when you're not paying the player, it makes sense. Totally. Yeah, and then you can just keep adding a game, like they're adding the the playoff series and in, in the football. Um, yeah, but that's inter- that's an interesting point. If if you were paying, then then you probably wouldn't have 360 or whatever teams. You'd you'd you know you'd be down to 40. And yeah. then it would be competitive. Now, now go to this argument. What about – because there's still the illusion that all of this is about getting everyone else educated. It's about getting these people educated. Like what about the lacrosse player whose team wouldn't actually exist except for the fact that they're in a, they're, uh, the football team brings in such money that it can afford to keep a lacrosse team going? And that then provides five scholarships for men and women in lacrosse. Well, the, the, again, come back. Uh, our argument is that only one in six of these men's football programs makes money. Okay. And so they're really currently draining money from lacrosse. They're not adding to it. So lacrosse is going to be better off if the football team and the men's basketball team were not draining millions of dollars from yeah. them. We, I think we just uh, think they're inherently making money. And yeah, they're they, not. But they're not. And I guess are you talking about everyone in the big conferences, they just – they like University of Utah, when it moved to the Pac-12, it changed a lot of their finances simply by moving into a bigger league and playing with the Pac-12. 
so it's really just the the ones I'm. I guess what you're saying is the largest divisions, largest conferences, and the best teams in those conferences are cash flowing. The rest probably struggling. Yeah, yeah, they're they're just bleeding money. Hmm. And so, yet, uh, it's such an interesting thing because I, again, I guess we don't get we don't get all the information, do we? Because we. No. We're all so impassioned and and so love the sport and the you know the rivalries uh, that we we maybe yeah. lose it. Yeah, the other and, and, and let me say I, I'm a, a a big sports fan, uh, you know, and, and still follow BYU athletics and and I'm you know a sports fan of of the the Chicago professional teams here, but I'm also an academic and I, and I think universities ought to you know, sort of specialize in the teaching and dissemination of knowledge uh, and not be running semi-pro right. athletic programs. Well, it also uh, seems so, like there's a yeah. market, right? There's there's people out there that would love to, you know, go make $5 million a year running a team, you know, outside of the university. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, so what? What do you? What about just simply the idea of branding the athlete? Let the athlete come in, and they even keep the same deal, but they get to keep their name, their likeness, their branding. Anything that comes from their name or likeness or branding, they get to keep. Yeah, no, I, I see nothing wrong with that at all. Okay, uh, one, one interesting sort of thing is if, if you go back to 1992 and the Barcelona Olympics, that's when we sent the dream team, the basketball. Yeah. We sent pro athletes for the first time. There were 12 players on that U.S. team that dominated everybody. Mm-hmm. But the that T-shirt only has 11 faces on it, not 12. Michael Jordan's face is not there. Hmm. Because he and Nike said we own his image, and if you want his, if you want his face on that T-shirt, fine. But you're going to have to pay us. Interesting. So it's not, and so I don't see why one has to sell one's likeness for free forever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I think it's an interesting, interesting concept. Well, Alan, we appreciate you. Let me, let me yeah. if you have time, just yeah. one more uh, comment here is that uh, just as almost anything, if if more people, you know, go to Burger King, that probably means that fewer are going to McDonald's. You know, there are winners and losers in these things. Um, if you went to paying players or compensating them much more toward a free market. Not all players are going to benefit from that. Right. The 85th guy on the Florida State football team is getting a good deal at the moment because he's getting room board tuition fees and books and probably some nice dates. Uh, but uh, and he gets to be part of you know have a letter jacket. But it's the quarterback you know who's probably worth several million dollars to Florida State who's just getting fifty thousand mm-hmm. dollars. If if a team drops football uh, or if you're paying the athletes, some are going to benefit and some are going to lose well i i totally agree i also think there's some people that are losing anyway on these teams because they're having their knees blown out they then get addicted to drugs uh prescription drugs trying to take care of their their physical ailments um well and 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 football the concussions is the big issue yeah well and they might opt out right so if if there wasn't the illusion and they weren't making money they might opt out sooner you know, yeah. and not have to keep certain dreams alive as well, and maybe find yeah. healthier plans that might produce better results for them long term. 
Yeah, exactly. Alan, we appreciate your insight. Uh, we're going to have to come check back in with you after these uh, cases come down and, and, and we start seeing a little movement in this. Alan Sanderson, uh, really great resource on sports economics. Uh, go to his website at the University of Chicago. Just look up Alan R. Sanderson, University of Chicago, and you'll get all the information you need. We're taking a break, my friends. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll come back, continue this discussion a little bit more right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Interesting discussion. Do you pay college athletes? I mean, I always grew up that there's something honorable about being an amateur. Unpaid. Then all of a sudden I think, yeah, but, man, if somebody's making money on my image forever, that's going to be frustrating. Hmm. What do you do? It's a, it's a, it's a big decision and I don't know how you untangle this crazy web, because, but I think it looks like the courts are going to end up doing it. Three lawsuits on the way that uh, will probably, plus just on top of that, all of the head injuries with the, the uh, concussion problem that you keep hearing about in football and other sports. I have someone very close to me that um, had a chance to come back and even play for BYU. And he had played a little bit at a Division II college. And, you know, loved it. Loved football, all states, defensive end, amazing, fast guy. And chose, played one year, D2, and decided not to come to BYU. They wanted him. They recruited him. They would have paid for school, gave him a lot of opportunities if he wanted it. And he said no. And I'm like, come on. Why? Why don't you want to do that? Number one reason, chance of going pro is like 1% out of college sports. So if you're in college, you've got a 1% chance of going pro, but you probably have about a 50% chance of hurting yourself. Yes. Like for your life. For life. Having a limp. And that's what he said. He goes, I don't want my knees to go. I'm not going to give my knees for college college football. And he he loved the sport. But I'm not gonna. If I'm gonna give my knees, let me do it for something else. Yeah, and that's. I mean, that you, it takes a uh, a person to kind of look at the bigger picture because you get caught up in that whole. Yeah. Because the coaches, when they recruit you, they just inundate you with texts and oh. mail, and they call you up and say, "Hey, how you doing? Did you, yeah. did you have fun at your senior prom? That's great. We're really pulling for did you. Did you go you with Stacy? Yeah, they know all this you stuff about Stacey. you, and it's it's really like official catfishing almost. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, you've met them, so it's not really you know the 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 full extent of catfishing. But it, it, it's kind of that thing where they've they they insert yourselves in their in your life, yeah, so that you won't feel like another school is more of your friend, right? Well, and then they fly so. in on their big jets, and then they bring you all this garb, and now all of a sudden, for the day, you can be from Notre Dame or whatever, yeah, and and it's all to feed this machine. To bring in more money from oh, yeah. TV contracts, and you have to keep your level of play up, so they need the best talent to do that. Isn't that weird, too? We also talked about this uh, on signing day with all the high school students. So now the universities go down to the high schools now and create these big promotional moments on signing day with media and press coverage. And I'm thinking, should a 17-year-old be 
psych- are they psychologically able to a even make this decision really? And then should they be getting this much press and media? It kind of blows the whole thing out uh-huh. of proportion. I mean, you're you're signing to go to college. There's a huge what if you ever actually get on a yeah. field or on oh, a yeah. court, whatever to play, and and I yeah. see I, honestly, I bet. But right it's all now, a promotional machine to to keep pumping you gotta attention keep, yeah. towards the sports programs. And then I didn't realize, but and then they the influence the NCAA has on the NFL. It's just it's just it's just a weird system. And again, it's not. I just think it's just how it's grown. Well, I don't think anyone's just evil doing this. The NCAA has money. The NCAA has uh, influence on pro leagues, but the same way the pro leagues affect. When, when yeah. he was talking about the NBA, when they made the rule that you need to be a certain age before yeah. you can go pro, which makes it so everyone has to go to one year of college at uh-huh. least. So there's been a, a small number of people, but they jump to Europe. Right. They go somewhere else to play and then come back and, and after a year to play to try their their hand at the NBA. I don't know how successful that's been, yeah. but. That's an option because you don't want to go to college. But you, so you go somewhere else. You do something else. Bryce Harper, who plays yeah. for the uh, Washington Nationals, he went to a junior college and then ended up kind of in a minor league sort of uh-huh. situation before he went pro because he didn't want to go to, say, a four-year college. Right. He was like, what's the point? Well, I want to play pro. You're a sports guy. You've done sports your whole life. Talk to me about this. Why wouldn't you just have affiliations? So cut off – uh, the sports programs from the universities outsource it. It's all minor league, basically minor minor league. But then affiliate them with NFL programs, so they're just they're minor just, they're so just, just minor league. It's like em- a minor league baseball system. Embrace the reality. Uh-huh. The problem is it's associated with the school, and I think there's this idea of education. We're yeah. here to educate young men. You hear that quite a bit. Every press conference for the NCAA tournament. Any questions? For the student athletes, right. which is a joke when you're talking to Kentucky, every the probably eighty like percent of the guys on that team are looking to go pro after this one season. Yeah, they will drop out of class before uh, the so, end of the semester. Okay, you know? so you just say we uh, because you're affiliated with this. All you're really buying is our branding, not our education. If you want an education, we'll give you a discount. You can come the, to the school for fifty percent off. The schools don't want to be associated. With something that has their name that doesn't have an education focus, also right. See, so they, they're not but, going to admit what's actually right. happening. But they also don't have the official. guts to just get rid of it. No, so, there's money involved. Well, exactly. So let, then, just let them get the money by br- using the brand. They might pay for a library because <laughs> of the TV contract with football. Yeah, one in six apparently. So the it, other five aren't paying for lunch. And I know I, I've read things where schools are really dealing with like a, a moral sort yeah. of argument. Do we support something that no, doesn't necessarily meet our education standards? What brings in money? And Well, I think it's yeah. great. I, I actually – this is a situation where I like the lawsuit idea simply because it's going to push – it's going to push some thinking. Uh, interesting stuff. We're going to take a break. When we come back, uh, we're going to have a whole new show, hour number two. We're going to be getting into um, – Did we overdo cleaning? Maybe we're too into being clean freaks here in the U.S. We'll talk about it next hour on The Matt Townsend Show. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm your host, Dr. Matt Townsend, your coach 
your guide on the side. We're doing what we can on this program, folks, to give you the tools, the insights you need. Taking the news a little bit deeper. We like to cover the news, but also maybe go a little deeper so you actually know what to do with what you're learning. You know, it's not enough to report it. Let's uh, let's actually dig in, figure out how it how it matters, why it matters to you. Welcome to the program. Uh, another great hour for you today. Today we're going to be talking about dirt. I think uh, there, there's a lot of history about bathing, cleaning, hygiene, and I think we might be overdoing it. We might be overcleaning. Disinfecting ourselves to the point where we're sick. Yeah. We are uber disinfected, and it might be causing some problems for you. I try to let my son play in the dirt. Just go ahead. Eat hey, the dirt. Do what you uh, need to do. My uh, <laughs> brother-in-law, when he finished med school, he's like, you know, after di- learning what I've learned, I kids need to eat more dirt. Build up those defenses. Yeah. I'm like, just send them over to our house. Send your kids over. Uh, great, uh, great day. Again, um, we... We talked about the NCAA before, and there was, I just got to get this out. Did you see the Wisconsin basketball player? I did. That was the magical interview moment because we were talking about should we be paying these athletes, and I would say I actually think, yeah, we got to pay these athletes. But if we're going to pay them, we also need to give them training and, and skills in doing a press conference. How not to speak into live microphones? How not to yes. speak into a live microphone. Uh, Nigel Hayes from Wisconsin – basketball team thought someone at his recent press conference was beautiful and in in front of the microphone he looks over he sees this really lovely beautiful reporter and he whispers under his breath to the other players on the stand with him man she's beautiful and um everybody could hear it and (laughs) she even yelled out somebody yelled out i heard you and then he just covered his He goes, face. Uh, did you hear that? Oh, oh that is classic. Whoops. See, but that's one reason we love college ball, because they can make those kind of mistakes. That's why it's got to be affiliated with a school, because then it's like, hey, this is just like high school. Yeah. Man, she's beautiful. But it doesn't really reflect the academics as strongly as some at the university would want. So should right. that be affiliated would be the argument. Right. Yeah. But let's just be real. They're not there. For no. academics. Absolutely. So then should they be affiliated? No. Or should they all just step away and be a minor I think, league? Actually, you know what I do think? I think they I, – I would look at it as a marketing. It's affiliate marketing. We're just using your brand to get to your market. It's just affiliate marketing. Yeah. The reason anyone follows the team is because of the college. Right. And then so. the college can maybe set their standards and, you know – I don't know. It, you, you would you – would And then the college that, can make money. I mean colleges yeah. lease out their technology. Colleges are using professors all the time. Colleges are using students all the time. If a student invents something with a college professor, the student's not going to probably own all of it. The no. professor is going to get a part of it. And the if, school. And the school is going to get a part of it. So we've been using people for years. So just continue. Just be more open about mm-hmm. using we, people. We're using James like crazy. Absolutely. But don't tell him. No. He's unaware. He doesn't need to know about this. Sitting right here, guys. Oh, hi. Hey, James. <laughs> yep. When did you get here? Oh, I've been here this entire time. I, I, I run the show. Oh, you do? You Yeah, you push those buttons. Yeah. Yeah, you can be on air because I put you on air. Did you hear what we were saying? I am sitting three feet away from you, yes. Oh, that's embarrassing. That's like that Wisconsin press conference. We didn't even know he was listening. Yeah, your mic was on. It was definitely on. But we did say, man, he's good looking. 
Didn't hear that. No, I didn't hear Did that you hear at that? all. No, I, I'm pretty sure. Maybe, I maybe was it implied somewhere? I, I think I was thinking that. All right. Oh, it was Im- implicit that. Yeah. I'm good looking. Okay. Big news this morning. What? Senate Minority Leader Harry Reid announces he will not be seeking re-election this next year. huge. Putting to end his nearly 30-year-long Senate career. He's 75. He has one eye. Yeah, he lost. He, After he, his, he, got his, he, got, he got seriously racked by an exercise ban. As it says, his exercise-related accident on New Year's Day. Mm. Who exercises? Oh, that's the beginning of your New Year's resolution. Everybody exercises on New Year's Day. I think I exercise every holiday but Christmas Day. Really? Yeah. Uh, me too. No, you don't. No, I do. <laughs> I do. You don't wake up early and run into the gym. And... Oh, no, I do. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's common. He says he doesn't want to be a 42-year-old trying to become a designated hitter. What? Does he not know he's 75? I know. Oh, he goes, well, he wants to be. Uh, he wants to go out at the top of his game. Yeah, he's, he's, he's referring to like baseball yeah. athletes that doesn't stay want too to, long. Yeah, turn into a player that hangs out. I mean, he's 75. He's been there 30 years. Is he at the top of his game? I would say not. He's good at standing around saying no like everyone else down there. So he, he obviously was good enough he got to the make it somewhere. to Senate majority leader and and hold it in probably one of the most you know powerful roles you can have in DC. Speaking of the Senate, they approved the GOP led budget bill overnight, fifty two forty six. And this is the one we were kind of laughing at because it had so many extreme cuts. The budget seeks to reduce uh, the federal deficit to zero within a decade, including repealing Obamacare. I like that. Um, oh, also, but, it but, talks about welfare and uh, what uh, food stamps and Medicare well, cuts. Yeah, and, see, so so I like the idea that they're trying to get the the budget down to zero in. Ten years. However, the New York Times notes that 52 of the votes in favor of the budget, not one was from a Democrat senator, a Democratic senator. Paul, Rand Paul and Ted Cruz, meanwhile, were the only Republicans not to vote in favor of the budget. Probably wasn't extreme enough for him. Just a guess. Just a guess. Interesting things going to happen here where uh, I'm going to bet. So is this already passed Congress? It was a House bill that they, they passed. Put it up. And then they put it up to the Senate so last night and they passed the president's it. president's going to... Then it comes down to, uh, I guess, the president has to look at it if that's well, how this process no, works. he'll say no, and then he'll veto it, and then all of a sudden they'll have to see if they can get enough people to pass it, which they won't be able to. Apparently yesterday the House held a vote-a-rama on Thursday. I love those. A marathon session casting votes on dozen of, dozen of, dozens of amendments uh, meant to force members to take positions on hot-button issues. Here we go. Uh, one of those amendments uh, may be its biggest legislative accomplishment of the year, a $214 billion package that fixes a massive funding gap in Medicare, extends health care to uh, poor children, and makes long-term spending cuts. The bill overwhelmingly passed 392 to 37, hmm. a rare moment of bipartisanship for Congress. So are they like mincing these into smaller bills and pushing out more of I them? I think that's what they're doing. Excellent. The bill already has President Barack Obama's blessing, but the remaining challenge is how and when it gets through the Senate. Democrats are unhappy with some of the details. Not sure whether they'll support it. They may postpone it for two weeks as they're taking some time off. Doesn't it, does it not make sense that instead of just saying, oh, I've got to clean the whole house, don't say that. Just say, I've got to clean the bathroom. I've got to clean the living room. I've got to vacuum the stairs. I've got to – you just break it into little pieces and then we start passing what we can. Speaking of, the Senate Republicans are determined to uh, hobble, I guess you could say, Obamacare, mm-hmm. while the 85 proposed amendments – 85 proposed amendments. They might be doing what you're talking about. 85 proposed amendments to Obamacare. To the health care law are largely symbolic. They serve as an indicator of lawmakers' priorities, including among the amendments proposed – 
by Republican senators are attempts to fully repeal Obamacare, ban any Obamacare marketing, and make Medicaid a matter of state's control. Senate Democrats, for their part, in the all the epic all-day voting session, will try to protect the Affordable Care Act by making it less easy for the budget to be affected and uh, mm. by increasing funding to the IRS in order to enforce Obamacare. So, so they're just of going 85, back and forth. President Obama said he he believes there are some changes that could be made to Obamacare. Let's just propose some. Propose some. So now they've proposed 85. Many, it sound like, are just extreme positioning, angry yeah. venting. But hopefully out of those 85, there's two, three, four, five. Hopefully. We can all just get along on. Hopefully the whole process isn't just a... They keep, you know, they keep burning money, thinking, keeping the lights yeah. on. I think they just keep thinking they're going to bring down Obamacare. They hope so. I think yeah. that's what oh, – there's been some uh, crazy uh, – not crazy, but there's obvious problems. Mm-hmm. They, they're, they're, they're putting forth ideas they think can fix them. Some of them feel like they're just putting it out there to be mean. Yeah. So I don't know. There seems like there's a, a better way to do it. Hopefully some of these 85 are actually positive and can actually affect the – the law in a positive way to make it better yeah well good luck to harry reed i'm sure we'll have many more goodbyes with him but that's a big deal to give up your career say you're not going to run again that's that's big so it's also probably freeing now he can go focus on getting his see his eyesight back and his his life back interesting uh also you got to respect somebody that'll serve the country that long too powerful We'll take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking to Catherine Ashenberger, who is uh, is the author of The Dirt on Clean, an unsanitized history. We're going to learn about the history of cleaning and overcleaning. Let's see if you're in the norm or not. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, are you particular about cleanliness? Do you worry about that 0.1% of the germs that hand sanitizers leave on your hands? You know, remember, it only kills 99.9% of the germs. Deodorant that lasts for 24 hours, mouthwash, shampoo, lotions. It takes a lot to keep all of us smelling so fresh, doesn't it? So how did our ancestors deal with being around each other without all of these old factory stimulators? Here to tell us more about the history on clean is Dr. Catherine Ashenberg, author of The Dirt on Clean, an unsanitized history. Dr. Ashenberg, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you. Great to have you. Now, how did how does somebody get onto the topic of cleanliness as as what you want to write about? <laughs> Well, uh, people often thought that I was obsessed with cleanliness, either very pro or very con. And as a matter of fact, I wasn't. I think I was kind of normal and average in the the days before I started this project. But I live in Toronto in Canada, and I was one day in the Royal Ontario Museum, and I saw a big crowd picture in uh, one of their exhibits of um, the Middle Ages, and it said, um, in this picture, the or not the Middle Ages, but the Renaissance, let's say, and it said, in this picture, the aristocrats are as dirty as the peasants. Press a button and learn more. And I did. 
um, and I learned about this fascinating, really kind of crazy, suggestible history that we have had as human beings where we have believed the most diametrically opposite things about cleanliness depending on uh, the time that you lived and the kind of proverbial light bulb went on in hmm. my mind and I saw a title and that's how it all started. Bingo. And so so what did you learn? What What is some of the history of cleanliness? Well, I, I think I thought before I started um, researching it, I think I thought that everybody was more or less filthy <laughs> until maybe the beginning of the 20th century. But what I, although I did have some vague idea of Roman baths, but yeah. what I learned was that Romans were incredibly clean. Um, medieval people uh, were incredibly dirty until the the Crusaders brought back from the Middle East the idea of a Turkish bath or a steam bath. And then all medieval people, they were built all over Europe and whole villages would take off all their clothes and get in the steam bath and have a great time. Wow. And until the Black Death came there we in 1947 <laughs> and doctors said, uh, do not get into baths because disease enters your body through open pores. So stay away from water. So people stayed away from water, really. Nothing extremely. like a plague to kind of ruin the whole bath industry. That's right, exactly. Uh, there's a French historian who called the ensuing uh, decades a thousand years without a bath. But really, it was only about 400 years without a bath. But people touched, did not touch water at all, except to wash their hands. And they thought they cleaned themselves by putting on a fresh linen shirt. They called it the linen that washes. And I don't know if you're old enough to remember the ads about ring around the collar. Oh, yeah. They would see ring around the collar and think, great. It's working. This linen shirt cleaned me, and it's not even dangerous. I won't even get the plague from wearing it. Interesting. So they would wear, and linen, of all things. Yeah. Because linen right now is like, oh, linen, it's too hard to iron. Exactly. (laughs) But they thought there was something in the actual flax plants that washed your body. Interesting. Isn't it? I mean, some of this is so just steeped in their paradigm, right? Just their... Even their ignorance, their assumptions, their, they're just misinformation. And But it was all this information and misinformation all came from the best medical opinions yeah. of the day. See, that, that is all, so important because yeah. they, they thought they were cutting edge. Hey, get me, yeah, get me, the, edge. get me the linen shirt, the mega linen shirt, the That's extra right. strength linen That's shirt. That's right. And, for example, Louis XIV of France, who was a very athletic guy and lived a very long life, was famous for only having had two baths in his entire (laughs) life. But he was considered super clean because he changed his linen shirt two times a day. Holy cow. But he's got to just stink. (laughs) Well, I think everybody did, and it was kind of the ocean that everybody swam in. So I kind of liken it to cigarette smoke. Like 20 or 30 years ago, people smoked in university classes, people smoked in houses, in hotel rooms, in bars, in restaurants. And we got, it was just like, we got used to it. Yeah, you couldn't tell. If I if I am assigned a room in a hotel that's on the smoking floor, oh my God, it's a you, disaster! Isn't that it, it is? We we get used to it, and then as a community, we're all like, "Come on in, we're yeah. fine." Yeah, exactly. Like I think the nose is a very teachable organ, and um, it was just used to that for thousands of years. Was it was uh, odor ever positive? Like pungency, positive? <laughs> Dependent, yes. 
uh, especially in France, which really? may or may not surprise you. Yes, and the French uh, had all these folk sayings like, the stinky ram attracts the ewes. Like they thought that a man <laughs> who really smelled a lot was very attractive to women. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, Larry, you smell horrible. Get over <laughs> here. That is just <laughs> off. And you'd think the French would get that. Well, the French have what they call a somatic culture of strong smells. Like they love strong cheeses, mm-hmm. strong wines, um, you know, really well-aged meats and well-aged bodies, I guess, just fit right into that. And they think the rest of us are just like so puritanical and prudish and so unsensual. That's true. Yeah, we take so many more baths than they do and showers. Totally. and Totally. It's such a – so is, did you notice over time, I guess it was cultural – and so over over history, the paradigm shifted, I guess, as we gathered more accurate data or I mean, or uh, just I mean, like the plague got everyone out of the tubs right? or, or the baths. It, yes. And the, and that fear of water lasted really, depending on what country you lived in and your sort of social class, it really lasted till maybe the end of the 18th century or the 19th century, depending on where you lived. And then again, it was misinformation. Scientists decided that after saying for 400 years, clog up those those pores because that will save you from disease. They then decided that carbon dioxide exited through clean pores, which we know now that it doesn't. It exits when we breathe out. Right. But they can, the scientists convinced the doctors who then convinced the people, oh, you know what? It's really cool to open your pores. It's really healthy. And this took a long time to convince people of that. But say in the 19th century, um, the idea of cleaning the way we clean began to take hold. Hmm. There was no, we didn't have any soap yeah. in the West until quite late in the 19th century. Soap for washing the body. We had soap for cleaning floors and clothes, but it was too harsh for the body. Um, so there's a hilarious little booklet written by a doctor, an American woman doctor in, I think, around 1861 called Baths and How to Take Them. <laughs> Because it was such a lost art. Yeah. And there was so much controversy. Should you use this thing called soap? Should you not? Should you just scrub yourself and hope in a dry way and hope that that would open your pores? Should the water be hot, cold, medium, et cetera, et cetera? Isn't it? Um, it's, it seems just so basic to us. <laughs> but yeah. it was cutting edge, wasn't it? Well, every single culture that I ever read about in every generation – thought just what you said that like, well, this is obvious. What we're doing is the only way to do it. Right. And and they made so many mistakes. And I think that we're making a mistake now by, by in North America, especially by thinking that we have to be so much cleaner than we need to be that we're actually, it's actually unhealthy. Yeah. We're washing off the good. That's right. Yeah. I mean, it's one thing, I mean, you can be clean and not showering every day. I remember in high school, I'd shower three times a day just because of gym and basketball class and you're always showering. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Man. But it's not good for you. Uh, It's really – isn't it amazing that you got here, Catherine, because you just started studying and and learned and it must have been fascinating as you uncover story by story. Uh, It it almost seems like this book probably just kept coming more to life. 
Yeah, it was. It was. It was fascinating. And uh, the more I learned, the more gullible I realized that we all are, yeah. and also that we're so culturally, um, we're so arrogant about our own culture. Like right. Everybody thought they had the key to cleanliness, yeah. and a way to exclude the outsider was often to describe them as um, most often too dirty, but sometimes too clean. Like the Europeans, when who never washed. Uh, would encounter people from the Middle East, like in the 16th or 17th or 18th centuries, and just be amazed that the, these were people who actually washed their bodies. Huh. And But they they didn't think, oh, this is an advanced civilization. They thought, wow, these people are weird. What weirdos. Yeah. They bathe. Their pores aren't packed with mud. Right. Exactly. <laughs> oh, it's fascinating discussion. We're going to take a break and come back more with Catherine Ashenberger. Go to her website, Ashenberg, Ashenberg.com, CatherineAshenberg.com. Uh, we also are going to come back and talk about a book. She's taken these ideas and has put together a children's book that she's working on called Gross. Uh, we're going to have her describe that to us as well and maybe get some insight as to what we should be teaching our kids. Um, it's so interesting. Just the discussion about judging each other and our my assumption even that, oh, you got to shower, people. Come on. We all have it. We'll take a break. Come back. More on cleanliness, the dirt on clean, up next right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. You bathe regularly. That's the question. Well, how much is regular? It's an interesting discussion we're having with Catherine Ashenberg. Go to her website, ashenberg.com. She wrote the book called The Dirt on Clean, An Unsanitized History. She's also the author of three prize-winning nonfiction books, and uh, she she's just wonderful and, and fascinating, the research she's done. She's also writing a book uh, right now called Gross, which is taking the same ideas that she's sharing with us and, um, and teaching our kids about cleanliness. We, though, you're saying, Catherine, in the end, we are probably overdoing our obsession with cleanliness. Yes, uh, I, and I'm, that's not my opinion. Dermatologists and doctors and epidemiologists are telling us the same things. Not not only that we're harming ourselves by washing off all this good bacteria and good oils, but we're also uh, just washing down so many products and conditioners and creams and lotions and shampoos down into the water life. It's not good for our huh. aquatic friends either. Yeah, it's interesting because we use – and part of this seems like the marketing culture in a way where they just keep telling us how to open our pores, how to cleanse our pores, exactly. how to you know deepen the – what is it? The oils in our hair. Whatever. Right. Well, advertising has been one of the most uh, the key elements in turning, especially Amer- North Americans. I include Canadians in that who seem to be much more gullible about what advertisers tell them than our European cousins who report, you know, less frequent showering and bathing, less frequent use of deodorants and creams, and much more skepticism about what they're told, or much more. 
there's there seems to be a more ease with the na- a natural body mm-hmm. that changes in the course of a day than we have. We start to get nervous if we're you know more than four hours away from our last shower. It's it's such. So I've seen my daughter. Uh, because when she, if she washes her hair too much, it, it damages it. So she'll bathe without getting her hair wet or whatever. And yet she'll, I've seen them put flour in their hair, like oh, yeah. cooking, baking flour right, right, to like take grease out. And I'm like, are you kidding? Cause yeah. if you started sweating, you'd be just, uh, you know, a muffin. yeah, you'd be about 300 degrees away from a tortilla. <laughs> what's so what what do you sense what's driving it i guess is it back to the same thing you learned with all the other cultures about just how it's just a paradigm it's just how it's, we see things yeah i guess what's driving it is um what i said this kind of gullibility about advertising and advertising advertising and toilet soap or soap that you could use on your body kind of grew up together at the end of the 19th century. So, and there's not that much difference between one toilet soap and another. So advertising really learned how to flex its muscles on soap. And they invented all this, what's called in advertising whisper copy, where you say, you know, she's always a bridesmaid, never a bride. What does that mean? All this stuff that incites anxieties about your own personal attractiveness. And it really, really worked in North America, particularly. Yeah, I mean, it gives you something to do. I mean, if you were born with just bad DNA or you just don't look good, well, you can at least go work on your hair and wash your face. Right, right. Well, then acne and then all of these chemicals we put on our kids' faces for their acne. It's just a lot of, it's just, I guess, a lot of, you know, focusing on the body and um, and yet, too, then, you know, when one starts doing it, the next starts doing it, and it becomes this kind of contagion yeah. issue. Yeah, you, you would be petrified to be the only uh, kid in your high school homeroom not using deodorant. Mm-hmm. Or um, Yes, but another uh, thing that I haven't mentioned yet about the, the harm that we're probably doing by being too clean is this um, hypothesis that's called the hygiene hypothesis. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of that? No. Oh, well— uh, it's about 30 years old, and it's the pediatricians were trying to figure out why are so many kids, why is there such a huge increase in kids with allergies and asthmas and things like that. And they began doing, when the Berlin Wall fell, a, a German pediatrician said, said to herself, this is a fabulous opportunity. I've got um, dirty, polluted, poor East Berlin and rich, mm-hmm. um, clean West Berlin and I'm going to and the same ethnic background and I'm going to study them and find out that the East Berliners have way more allergies and asthma. Well, she investigated and found out that the West Berliners, clean and prosperous, had way more allergies and asthmas. And this oh, was wow. such a shock that they this this was thus was born the hygiene hypothesis, which says that by making our atmosphere too clean, we're depriving our immune system of a way to get strong and flex its muscles. Yeah. And this is the reason. So they've now developed a profile of the child most likely to get allergies and asthmas and least likely. And <laughs> least likely is uh, you're born on a farm. Yeah. You have older brothers who bring a lot of dirt in. You go to daycare. Uh, your your mother doesn't bathe you every day, et cetera, et cetera. So this has been 
It's that still is fascinating. Is it? But it's been really, really a revolutionary way for pediatricians and epidemiologists to think. And on top of it, we also now are, in order to protect our children from all of those germs, we're using more and more chemicals that we're probably allergic to. Exactly. And yeah, so, so it's, 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 it's going to kill you either way. It's a circle we've invented for ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't it crazy? All in an effort to be clean. And and even just how many times as a child did – I mean, the big thing is, well, I hope if you're ever in an accident that you have clean underwear. And you're like, Mom, I could be decapitated and my underwear will not matter. <laughs> right. <laughs> but but exactly. wear clean underwear. Oh, it's fascinating. Talk about your book um, and the book for kids. What are you trying to do there? Well, when I was writing the book for grown-ups, an editor said to me, you know, this is a great idea for 9- to 12-year-olds. And I kind of, I guess I stored it in the back of my head. And um, last year I kind of um, dusted it off. And I am writing a book uh, that will be published in the States and Canada uh, that I'm calling Gross! Exclamation <laughs> point. I do want to be known as the author of Gross. Oh, that is great. Uh, and the sort of, the beginning impulse was that kids love really, really disgusting things. And there are many examples of really, really disgusting things <laughs> in the dirt on clean. But I am finding, uh, I'm finding rewriting it and rethinking it and really recasting it for nine to 12 year olds. I think I maybe it. the biggest challenge of my Is writing it? life. Be, I, I didn't think it was going to be a walk in the park, right. but I kind of underestimated when you're writing for grown-ups, how much context you just rely on. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't have to explain what the Civil War is or right. what the Crusades were for grown-ups. Oh, my God. I'm oh, so yeah. How we, do you do that? I'm so glad we have the Internet because I am, like, consulting it constantly. What, what for, are some – give us some gross stories that these kids are going to hear. Like, my kids would love that book. And at 9 to 12, it's that age where we go teach them the maturation class and we talk about personal hygiene. Exactly. And exactly. it's a, such a perfect – it's a perfect yes. book for them. Yes. Well, my my editor keeps saying to me, never forget – you know, she said, obviously, you're going to take out a lot of the sex, which yeah. I am. But she said, but never forget, this is an audience for whom the idea of a bear bum will always be funny. So That's true. There's, there's a lot of nudity and a lot of, you know, the fact that we didn't have toilet paper. Oh, well, well say, uh, for example, that the boys at St. Paul's very fancy school in London, they did build urinals for the boys, but they were told that for other, quote, other causes, um, <laughs> they had to walk down to the River Thames and oh, just pool along the banks of the river or in the river. And then there was no such thing as toilet paper, so they just used rushes or grasses Oy. to wipe their bottoms. So oh. they, don't worry, there's so many gross things. In this book. Yeah, honestly, though, that's also going to get, my, man, my kid would be like, oh, dad, I love you. I love this house and I love that Charmin. Um, I mean, to me, it's it's such it's such an enlightening thing because we don't think about that. Like how if you're not showering, that's one thing. But then just basic hygiene. What about teeth brushing? Oh, exactly. And people used plants for that. Oh, get this. The Spanish brushed their teeth with urine. Ooh. What? (laughs) Yes. A friend of a friend of mine with young kids said to me, you're calling it gross, but Catherine, gross to kids means worms. And I said, I have worms. Like, don't worry. There are worms yeah. in the book. There's worms, too. But <laughs> There's they, worms, too. They, so, I mean, I didn't even know they were really brushing their teeth. They, they knew to brush their teeth. 
Well, brushing, that might be yeah. kind of... Uh, cleaning, I guess scraping. They, a, lo- <laughs> a lot of them just use flannel rags and just rub their teeth just to get off, you know, the mm-hmm. enormous sweaters of accumulated not brushing your teeth. Wow. And then I'm assuming when they... You know, they if they all they were doing is really washing their hands and then they'd brush their teeth with their hands. But um, exactly. what yeah. about like dental work and were they just pulling teeth left and right? Is that you just work, yes. you just eat yes. till you lose a tooth and then you just. Yes, yeah. that's right. Right. Did the tooth fairy exist back then? <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> you know what you need to do in, in your research? You need to go find out if the tooth fairy was paying five dollars a tooth. Because that's exactly. what my child told me uh, all the neighbors are getting. Oh, my gosh. That is crazy. Isn't that crazy? Well, do you remember what yes. you probably got? What did you get as a, a child? Quarter. I got a quarter. Yeah. And, and you were yeah. lucky if you got a quarter. Yeah. <laughs> and I noticed that my grandchildren get a dollar, but don't tell them about $5. No, five bucks. Yeah. Uh, with our kids, it was always the weirdest thing because sometimes our tooth fairy had change and sometimes the tooth fairy didn't. So sometimes yeah. the tooth fairy would like give 10 bucks. And sometimes they'd get like five bucks and quarters. Right. Just right. depends on if the tooth fairies made tooth fairies made change that day. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I wonder when it started. That's a very good question. I'm going to Google that. That's a whole new book for you. Yes, right. <laughs> That's what I always like to do, Catherine, is give authors other ideas Thank to you. go Thank follow. You. I appreciate it. Um, I'll it, remember you in the acknowledgement. Yeah, please, please do. As as. Uh, as we're wrapping up, I'd love you to just – what do we need to make sure we pay attention to? Of all the history you've read, of kind of all the misinformation, the many, many, many years, even up to today, of us believing the wrong ideas about hygiene and, and being clean, what do we all need to kind of walk away with? Well, um, that's a good question, and I, I often think uh, people – we are not doing a whole lot of manual labor, most of us, these days. So the idea of, you know, a bath or a shower every single day, maybe. I don't have anything against recreational, what I call recreational washing, as long as we don't have a water shortage. But just think about, you know, all of our labor-saving devices, our vacuum cleaners, our dishwashers, the fact that we have public transit or drive cars, uh, the fact that we are actually, the fact that our clothes are so clean, we are actually not working up a sweat anywhere right. near the amount that farmers or factory workers yeah. or really hard manual laborers, laborers were doing in the old days. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm always saying like, just think about spot cleaning. Or oh, oh yes, I'll, I'll leave you with this. The uh, there's a woman who runs a, a French woman who runs a perfume shop here in Toronto, and she said to me once, why are North Americans so obsessed with these daily showers and daily baths? She said, you just have to wash the hairy bits, which <laughs> I, actually, it's it's, not, it, it's, I think you should also wash your feet, as yeah, a matter of fact. Yeah. But, but so anyway, I, I yeah. would just like to leave people with a sense of perspective, like um, what the advertisers tell us is not really written in stone. Yeah, I love yeah. that. And, and Catherine, I also just love... The idea that we ought to just question. I mean, the paradigm, apparently, one universal truth is that we've always been off. Right. And um, even now, we're probably a little bit off. We're going to we're gonna make sure we're looking out for that book, Gross, when it comes out. Let us know when it comes out. I'd love to have you on again and talk about that. Uh, my kids would love that book. We're going to take a break, Catherine, too. but I appreciate you being with us. Take care, everybody. Go to her website, Ashenberg.com, Catherine Ashenberg. 
and The Dirt on Clean. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. We're talking movies with parent previews when we come back on BYU Radio. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, uh, you're going to see the movies this weekend? We like to uh, do a quick review of upcoming movies, and especially a, a parent-friendly version. We want we want to give your, you as a parent the idea and, and the tools you need to, to make sure your kids can go see the media that's appropriate for them. Uh, joining us is Rod Gustafson from ParentPreviews.com. And uh, he he's with us every week, trying to give us some heads up on some movies and and ideas that are out there. Rod, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hello, Matt. How you doing? I'm doing just fine. I hey, loved your previous guest. Did you hear that? Being an only, well, yeah, being an only child, I have what's called only child syndrome, where you know I really like clean things, and I thought, okay, I got to work on this harder. When I go to a movie theater, <laughs> yeah, and after I come home and I. Touched, you know, like all those different surfaces. Like the first thing I do, I walk in the door and I wash my hands. You know, it's so funny, Rod. It's she's from Toronto, so and you're from Canada. What part of Canada yeah. are you from? I'm from Western Canada. Yeah. I'm I'm much further from Toronto than I am from you, Matt. What's with the Canadians? <laughs> What's with the Canadians and all this cleanliness? Yeah, you right. you like clean movies, and she likes just clean bodies. <laughs> that's right. It's good stuff. Yeah. Right. What? Can't so explain it. There's a movie out uh, called Home, an animated yeah. movie. Uh, what's up with that? Is that a keeper? Well, it, it's a moderate keeper. And first of all, anybody, anyone who runs to our website, I'm sorry, we're having a technical glitch at the moment, and the review isn't there, but it will be there shortly. Okay. Um, this film, we're giving this one a B minus overall, and our B minus grade is we kind of laugh. We have certain grades that show up for certain movies. That means this movie doesn't have enough bad content in the way of violence and language and sexual content. To, for us to say to parents, no, you really shouldn't let your kids see this. But at the same time, it just really isn't that well of a made movie. And uh, and this is a movie about a little alien that comes to, well, actually, it's not just one little alien. It's a, it's a whole planet of aliens that are looking for a new place to live. And they come to Earth, and they relocate all the humans to the desert in Australia, and then the aliens take over the rest of the planet. Huh. Uh, what's a little bit strange about this movie is that the humans seem quite happy to be relocated for the <laughs> most part, and the aliens take over, but there is one little alien who is just kind of a, he's just kind of different, and uh, he keeps on getting into trouble and that type of thing, and it turns out there's a little human girl who in New York City, she hid somewhere, and so she is still there amongst the aliens. Well, these two characters find each other, and, of course, they become friends, and that's where the interaction between the humans and the aliens starts. Hmm. There's a, this, this is a tries-real-hard movie, and, in fact, the problem is it tries too hard. And a lot of movies aimed at children suffer from this, where they want to bring across a message of tolerance and acceptance and understanding of others, which are all good things to do. But they do it in such a ham-fisted way that it really it doesn't leave much opportunity to ch for children to really 
kind of be able to think about this for themselves. And as I mentioned at the beginning, is that, you know, they, this message of tolerance and understanding comes within an envelope of a story where, you know, they boot all the humans out yeah. and take over the planet. <laughs> and, you know, there's, there's a point, Matt, I think we're so busy right now teaching our kids about tolerance yeah. that sometimes we forget that there are times when there are situations where you legitimately may need to defend yourself, you may need to stand up for yourself and say, wait a minute, this is my home. You mm-hmm. can't just come in and take over my home. And uh, so that was the part of this movie that I think sends a bit of a confusing message uh, to young people. And and on top of that, the alien character, do you, re- you remember Jar Jar Binks, Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. The character George Lucas came. Well, the alien character talks a lot like Jar Jar. And after you listen to this for 90 minutes, you may also be worried your children are going to come out of this movie with a speech impediment. So that was rather painful. Yeah, but they'll be very sensitive uh, to not and tolerant, but they, no one will understand them because they'll have a speech impediment. Yeah, exactly. Yes, you got it, Matt. But that's really fascinating because so, it's like we're trying – and I look with my kids. My kids are incredibly tolerant. And I don't mm-hmm. – it's not me. They're more tolerant yeah. than I am. And – so I, I wonder if we are demeaning them a little bit by trying to push a paradigm on them, even though they they already have a certain – they're raised with kids with diversity and, you know, multiple ideas and multiple levels of acceptance that none of us were ever raised with. Yes. You know, Matt, that's a really good point. I find that my kids, too, they are amazingly tolerant, and sometimes I think – Come on, yeah. you know that it's okay every now and then to say, "All right, I'm frustrated. I w- I need to do. I need to change this." Mm-hmm. And my kids are very, very tolerant. And I agree. I think sometimes because obviously kids aren't making these movies; adults are. And I think sometimes adults forget that really, who needs this message? Are the adults exactly even more than the kids do? Yeah, maybe that's what they ought to do: is target a movie with the same intensity <laughs> and start same try to kind of teaching lessons. Uh, for adults, and then and let the kids write it. Yeah, yeah, that might be an interesting experiment. Mm. So, so you gave it a B minus. It's you know that's yeah. The biggest concern that parents are going to have in our traditional content issues. There's no sex in this movie. I think if somebody calls somebody else a name a couple of times, like I mean, so there's really no profanity. Right. Uh, and so really, the only issue is slapstick. Uh, cartoonish violence. There's a lot of scenes where people are kicking, poking, slapping, you know, that type of thing is going on. So, <laughs> so which gives us a, we, we give that a C-plus for violence. We've learned over the years that when parents see an animated movie like this, that they're really expecting a very low levels of violence. And so we actually bias our violence grade. We're, we're a little bit tougher on these movies. They're being uh, targeting six-year-olds. So it's interesting. They, they may have a speech impediment. They'll probably be slapping, hitting each other. <laughs> yep. And yet they'll have a great moral to the story. Yeah, but they'll be very tolerant. You're purple. That's okay. I'm, I'm orange. That's fine. Yeah. You'll be tolerant to the guy hitting you next next to yes. you that talks funny. Uh, talk about DVDs. Some DVDs are coming out. Uh, what, what are you What are you thinking about The Hobbit and some of these DVDs coming out? Yeah, well, you've got The Hobbit that's out, which is going to be one that I think a lot of families may be interested in. And get this, now you can buy The Hobbit Trilogy, of course. This is the final movie out on DVD, and now you can get all three of them in one big package, and it's downloadable that way, too. Mm. And so if you're if you're having a quiet, boring weekend, you can watch about nine hours of The Hobbit. Doesn't that sound like fun? <laughs> That'd be great. 
I'm not the biggest Hobbit fan, sorry. Um, Unbroken <laughs> also is out on home video this week. And, of course, this was the movie that Angelina Jolie uh, directed. I think she was hoping it would pop up in award circles a lot more. It's a very inspiring movie. Yeah. Definitely not for younger children, but for teens and adults, based on a true story, very good story. And uh, Into the Woods, uh, Walt Disney has released this on home video. And, of course, this is the... Uh, very well-known uh, Stephen Sondheim uh, play, uh, and this is the the whole the fairy tale musical, which we quite enjoyed. But again, this is a film that would be much more appropriate for older teens. Even I must admit, Matt, the first time I watched this, I didn't like it very much. The second time, I liked it more. The third time, I thought, Oh, I'm starting uh, to get it. You Maybe get I'm it. just slow on the uptake. But yeah, it seems to do better with repeated viewing. I don't know. I haven't even seen it yet. I've got to get on the game here. Yeah, yeah, quite quite an interesting, it is quite an interesting film. Oh, and I should mention, too, they've re-released Gravity yet one more time on a Blu-ray edition. This is really cool, though. Gravity, of course, that's that's the film with uh, George Clooney and uh, Sandra Bullock out in space. With this new Blu-ray edition, you can turn off the musical score. And so it, it's, it gives you more of a sense of the silence wow. in space, which is kind of yeah. a geeky, strange thing, but it's kind of cool watching it that way. So yeah. that's, out, that's out and about as well. Ah, oh, Rod, you did it again. That's great. Uh, great stuff. Appreciate, appreciate your caring for my kids so much that you'll go do this. Everybody, go check out the website, parentpreviews.com, and uh, just keep working hard, Rod. We'll take a break, my friends. That's the end of hour number two. Next hour, we're going to be talking about kale chips. Kaylee. <laughs> Kaylee's looking at me like I'm crazy. Uh, one of our producers, Kaylee Danes, has put together some great kale chips. We'll be talking about it. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Talk to you next hour. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm your host, Dr. Matt Townsend, your coach, your guide on the side. Doing what we can on this program to give you the tools you need to live a healthier, happier life. And man, have we got some tools for you. Number one, we are going to be talking a uh, little later in the show. We're going to be doing a taste test of kale chips. Um, but we wanted to save that opportunity for the guys from BYU Sports Nation. Because we know they love food. We're going to give them a chance to do a live on the air testing of kale Is this food? Chips. Well, she... Are we just repurposing things we've already thrown away? Yeah, yes. <laughs> or things that have grown in our garden, like a or, weed. Or your fridge. Or your fridge. And you repurpose it. <laughs> yeah. Kaylee Danes, one of our great producers on the show, uh, loves kale. For now. I mean, yeah. She keeps bringing kale uh, in. Soon to be. (laughs) She loves kale. And um, she's like, you really have got to try some kale chips. I just can't get enough of them. So she brought it in. And um, I'm not going to tell you. But I tried it. Hold off. But but now the studio Smells. smells like, I don't know, like we just had 60... Twelve-year-old boys. If this was a smell in my home, I would try to maybe take the trash out, 
Maybe yeah. the garbage has something in it that needs yeah. to leave the home, or yeah. maybe the, I yeah. need to clean something. This or is a smell that would even drive me to get, say, hey, we got to take that garbage put out. Put some lemons in the garbage disposal, something to kind of freshen the place up. If sure. there was a sound for what this smells like, yeah. I think it would sound like this. <laughs> Compost? By okay. the way, that's – let's <laughs> – <laughs> Yeah, that's exactly right. Now, th- that is the sound – that I felt right there. <laughs> no offense, Kaylee. She loves them. She can have them. And at home, not in the office. And she, and we're not even dissing her cooking because she made the chips because apparently, you know, they're hard to find. <laughs> For her reason. <laughs> but uh, we're going to have a great time. It's a little taste test. For the guys on BYU Sports Nation. I, by the way, having had uh, some kale today, I feel I feel better. I feel healthier. I almost feel like I need to get rid of everything that's inside of me. It's because you've lost your appetite? You've uh-huh. lost all desire to eat anything else? I, right now, don't want to eat ever again. So, kale, it does a body good. <laughs> That's their new slogan. Hey, eat some kale. It does a body good. Anyway, I think we've offended Kaylee. It's all right. She'll get over it. Hey, Kaylee, if you're sad, go grab yourself some kale. You have plenty of it. Nobody else wants any. <laughs> I think she's sad because she brought like a huge bowl of it. Not a huge, but a pretty big bowl of it. And yeah. pretty much only one person has tried it. Just, yeah. So she'll she'll have plenty to... Uh... You know who loves kale? Who's that? Dawn. Well... He probably dresses it up. Kaylee, you need to run. In fact, run down the hall, and I want you to go give some to Don, and then go up to Derek, (laughs) the director of BYU Broadcasting, because I'm pretty sure that guy loves kale. Run up to Derek. Go meet him. You need to meet him. And then say, Derek, try this kale. Matt thought you'd like it a lot. Give it to all the guys out there. Scott Swafford, give him some. Just pass it around the offices. Yeah. I think it's a great way for you to meet everyone. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Anywho. Moving on. Any th- any other destructive news Army, other than kill? Army National Guard Specialist Hassan Edmonds, 22, and his cousin Jonas Edmonds, 29, have been arrested for allegedly conspiring to, su- uh, conspiring to support ISIS, according to the Justice Department. These are a different Jonas brothers? Uh, it's a Jonas Edmonds and a Hassan Edmonds. Okay, these are the Edmonds brothers. The complaint alleges that the younger Edmonds was planning to travel overseas to fight with the terrorist group while the cousin was planning to attack a military base in northern Illinois. Hmm. Hassan Edmonds took a – he booked a flight for Egypt March 25th and was arrested at Chicago's Midway Airport the same day. Wow. Can you imagine? So where did the boys go? Uh, they're just going to fight with ISIS. Yeah. Oh, uh, according to the Washington Post, a group of supporters of Hillary Clinton is trying to make 13 adjectives that have been used to describe the former Secretary of State off-limits to the media. Oh, wow. Okay. The Clinton super volunteers, mm-hmm. as they're being called, have promised to track the media's use of words they believe to be sexist code words. Did, did they give any? There are. Uh, these are the words. They have okay. all of them here. Well, oh. right, hold on. James, write these down. Can you uh, write them down? Okay. And um, because I, I don't, I want to make sure we don't use these words. Um, are you ready? Did you need to get a typewriter? No, no, I'm a little bit more modern. Today. Oh, are you? Okay, great. Go ahead. Uh, the words are polarizing, calculating, disingenuous, insincere, ambitious, inevitable, 
entitled, overconfident, secretive, will do anything to win, represents the past, out of touch, and tone deaf. The thinking here is that these kind of words are attached to Clinton in a way that they wouldn't be attached to male candidates. Oh, I use all of those words talking about you two all the time. Ambitious? Mm Mm-hmm. Inevitable? Uh Uh-huh. Entitled? Uh Uh-huh. Overconfident? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Did you get those, James? Uh, I got about the first four. I ta- t- apparently, I type at just about 35 words per minute. Pretty slow. Yeah. I don't know where you learned to type. You're what better, are you typing You're better on? on a typewriter, apparently. Yeah, I can type about 600 words per minute on a typewriter, but the keyboard, yeah. not so much. Keyboard's hard. So those 13 words or phrases. Well, that's sexist. That's sexist to make those words sexist. That's and, just... That's just... That's and, and not they've, right. they've reached out to reporters saying, we're watching you, so be careful. Mm, intimidation. And then they'll come at them on Twitter, I guess. Censorship. So so let me get this straight. This is not Hillary Clinton. These are supporters yes. of Hillary. And they're saying, we're not afraid to use intimidation and censorship in order to make sure that you report what we want you to report. Yes. Fantastic. So to limit intimidation and censorship, they're going to... By chance, intimidation by chance, uh, is this group run by a guy named Vlad? No. Vladimir? No. Okay. Just checking. Not not connected. The Secret Service are tightening rules on driving agency cars after drinking because okay. of recent events. No, that's a good. That's great. Uh, the new rule says you cannot drive an agency car within 10 hours of drinking alcohol. Okay. The previous rules were that... Uh, they prohibited staff from operating vehicles when they are under the influence of alcohol or perceived to be impaired. Yeah, those are kind of vague. So those are sort of judgment calls. The other one is 10 hours. 10 hours from when you last consumed alcohol. Then maybe they don't bump pylons. Can I just suggest they add one thing to that rule? What's that? I'd say alcohol, drugs, or kale chips. Yes. All intoxicants. She put those in your office, by the way, and shut the door. She better not have. <laughs> I'll have to fumigate to get that, that smell out of there. But it will get rid of those bugs. <laughs> yeah, nothing will live in that room. Apple CEO Tim Cook says yeah. he's going to donate his fortune, $800 million, to wow. charity when he dies. What a guy. That's great. Unless you're his kids. Yeah, his kids are probably ticked. There's, there's no kids. Um, uh, he uh, he plans to give away his entire fortune prior to donating it all. Cook will make sure that his 10-year-old nephew, his education's paid for. He did not say which charities he'll give the money to, but he has spoken publicly about his support for human rights, equality, and other, other uh, charitable organizations. The Guardian reports in 2012 that he donated $25 million to Stanford to build a new children's hospital mm-hmm. and $50 million to Project Red. That's great. Uh, James, take a note. Okay. Will you please make sure that Mr. Cook knows about the uh, 501c3 charity that is the Matt Townsend Show? Okay. For future funding. That's your personal slush fund? Is that what that? That is the don't. That's the slushy fund. Oh, the slushy fund. It's right. a different. It's different than a slush fund. It's to uh, we have a weird cause to banish all consumption of kale. On the earth. I think it's a good cause. We actually want to start turning it into a biofuel. It would probably be a, a benefit to all of humanity. No more corn. Thing. We want kale fuel. KF, we're going to call it. Is that how you spell kale with a K? I hope so. 
or else someone looks kind of foolish. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's Kel with a K. Kel fuel. Keep the corn, kill the kale. That's what we always say. Put that on a bumper sticker and meme it. <laughs> meme this. <laughs> <laughs> you know who's going to be proud of us, though, is our next guest. Sarah Gowans is joining us uh, in just a bit from the Happy Gal blog. They have been trying to get me to eat healthier for years. And uh, now I can officially say I am eating healthier. I had half of a kale chip. Um, and I feel healthier already. Honestly, don't have any desire to consume anything ever again. I guess that's healthy. Sarah Gowans from the Happy Gal blog. She's going to come give us some ideas on how we can increase our discipline. Get more disciplined so that we exercise. Get rid of the lazy, basically. And I'm not talking about your spouse. We'll take a break, my friends. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, we have this new update, this just in. As I'm trying to eat healthier, we tried uh, a kale chip, and here's the deal. I've decided it's better to use kale for fuel than it is for human consumption. I created a company. I'm about to create a company, so nobody do this because this is my idea. Uh Called, I was calling it the Kel Fuel, but then Don came in after having tested and confirming, and Don's the man. Don's the manager. Uh, he's confirmed that we, we, we really ought to go with this idea, and he decided, as the executive that he is, we're going to call it the Kel, the Kel Fuel Company. Shorten it. We're going to call it KFC, and we're going to put big barrels, red and white striped barrels of Kel Fuel. KFC. And we're going to call it Finger Lickin' Kale. I just added that. See, the way this works, this is brainstorming. Slowly, we're putting together an incredible idea. KFC. Kale Fuel Company. Mm. And I I just had a brainstorm. I'm thinking of dressing James with white hair and a white goatee beard and mustache in a white suit. That's really original. And call you, not the colonel, we're going to call you the commander. Ooh. The kale commander. Kale commander. Anyway, Sarah Gowans is our next guest. She will be so proud of me because she has already, she's been a great advocate for kale. And um, when I tell her my ideas, she's going to be overwhelmed. Sarah Gowans is, um, (laughs) she uh, is the writer and one of the uh, great leaders at thehappygal.com, which is a great blog that's designed to get us to eat healthier, be healthier, get organized, live healthier, happier lives. She uh, also um, is uh, works with Jenny Layton, who's also kind of the founder of the blog. Sarah is a great friend of the show, and she's here today to teach us just about getting more focused, more disciplined in our exercise. Sarah Gowans, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Matt, it's good to be here. How are you? Good. I'm awesome. How are you? Um, I'm recovering. From the kale chip? Uh Uh-huh. Well, the kale half (laughs) chip. 
You only ate half of it. No, I ate the whole. Th- I ate the whole part. I ate. I, I finished it, but I only took well, half a chip. Okay. Oh, so you took half, but you ate everything that you took. Mm. Well, that's good. Mm-hmm. That's a good start. I wouldn't say you ate. Know, I consumed it. I finished it. You know, if you just keep eating and eating more and more, then you'll they'll grow on you. You'll love them. Well, no, I have no doubt it would grow on me. <laughs> I have no doubt. You know, my daughter actually makes kale chips. She came home one day and said, Mom, will you go buy me a bunch of kale? And I had never made them before. So I really? brought them home to her, and, uh-huh. she, and she made them. And I think they're delicious. Is she, is she okay? She, yeah, she's one of the most go-getter kids you will ever meet, actually. What? She's did, a good kid. Maybe, does she, I mean, but she has friends and stuff, right? Yeah, she's actually in the middle of elections for SEO is she, today. Is she doing that? She made primaries, and the oh. final elections are today. Oh, the so pressure. I know. The pressure. She'll so, be great. Yeah. You know what, can I just... eating kale chips, she is liked. Well, you know, well, g- give her some advice from Uncle Matt. Uh, I wouldn't talk about the kale chips during the election. <laughs> okay, well, it may be a little late, because I think they're voting oh, okay. this morning, okay. but we'll, oh, well hope that she didn't bring it up. Oh, well. But that's cool. Best of luck to her. And Sarah, I haven't seen you forever, um, but you're the queen of kind of figuring out ways to get disciplined. Yeah, well, you know, I actually have an interesting take for you today what? on discipline and health, and I'm going to kind of just twist your paradigm a little Let's bit. Do it. Twist away. So, if you're ready for that, okay. So, a lot of times we think when we want to get healthier that it comes down to we've got to just be harder on ourselves. We've got to be more disciplined. You know, get all these things in place and just grit it out, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I was thinking about that, and um, I thought, you know, actually, discipline is not the word that I would use when you want to make lasting changes in your life. And so I actually looked up the definition for discipline. And so listen to this. It says, discipline is the practice of training people to obey rules or a code of behavior using punishment to correct disobedience. Ah, yeah. So does that sound enlightening and fun to you? (laughs) Sounds like I would rebel against it. That's why I rebel against discipline. Yeah. And so I thought, you know, that is so interesting because... So many times we think we have to discipline ourselves in order to make these changes, but I actually look at it in a different way. So what I think of is I need to educate myself instead of discipline myself. So if you look up the definition of education, it says the process of receiving or giving systematic instruction and enlightening experience. Hmm. So there you go. I thought that was so cool because as I've kind of gone through my own journey of making changes and getting healthier through my life, that's what I feel like when I've made changes that work, it's when I educate myself and instead of like gritting it out and being disciplined. So it's just more like learning. And there's a quote that I absolutely love that says, um, true doctrine understood changes attitudes and behavior. Yeah. That's cool. I love to apply that to, getting healthier and just making changes in our lives. And even when I say healthy, I'm not only talking about physical body, because you know me, I'm all about mind, spirit, body, right, right? Right, right. So this can be when it comes to eating or exercising, it can be emotional health, it can be spiritual health, whatever, you know, aspect that you want to do better at in your life. So, and, and it's really, so what's cool about it is it, instead of the, instead of the push coming from the outside, 
and and like um, forcing me, compelling me, demanding that I make a change. Education it, it creates more of an inspiration. So the information gets into me from the outside, but then I change because I'm I'm it's it's on the inside of me wanting to change. So it's an inside yeah. out approach versus an outside in. It's going to stick longer. Yeah, that's it. You totally nailed it. So what I did is I sat down and I thought of five different steps that we can do to kind of create. If you are in a place in your life, I was thinking about your listeners and maybe, you know, there's people that want to make these changes, whether it be physical, emotional, whatever. Um, So I came up with these five steps that we can do to kind of get there. So it's kind of an action uh, plan, I guess. So these are the five (laughs) steps to get... The plan, and to get to get moving on, on whatever you want to go accomplish. Exactly. That's great. Yeah. Let's get let's so get a few of them in, and then we'll take a break, and then come back okay. and do the rest. Cool. Yeah. So the first one is actually to shift your paradigm. So we just barely talked about that, where um, you're thinking about education more than discipline and just learning. Uh-huh. So that's actually step one. And especially learning um, where you're passionate, right? You, you want to be if the if you're trying to go force yourself where you're not passionate. So, but even about like exercise, there's something Mm -hmm. about exercise that you're probably interested in. Yeah, absolutely. Right, the science of it, or the sociality of it, or uh, just the technique, or the image, the look, the feel. There's something that would motivate. Yeah, yeah. So that leads right into step number two, which is um, so I want everybody if they're going to make these changes, I want them to sit down and write down the reasons why. They want to get healthy and so become aware of their motivation. Mm. So just along the lines with what you're talking about is um, to be, if you become aware of what are my motivations for why I want to make these changes, to sit down and write that out makes such a big difference. You bet. So, what do you think, it, what do you sense it will do? So knowing the why will give us what? Well, Knowing the why makes the change. So, okay, let me give you an example. Yeah. So when I – I used to be a horrible cook, by the way. I <laughs> did not – I mean, if you saw how I cooked when I was in my early 20s and first married, it was pretty sad. So through the years as I've tried to learn how to cook healthier, there were times when I would do it just to do it, but I didn't have really a reason why or understand. So there was a point when one of my kids got really, really sick – and all of a sudden, my motivation to cook healthier yeah. shifted hugely. That's you know cool. what I mean? Right. Because because I knew that the um, cooking healthier would help this child be healthier. And as a mom, there's that's a huge yeah. shift. So the, that example is my motivation became so big because I realized I want to cook healthier because I want my kids to be healthy. And that was a big shift for me back when I was younger because I realized as a, a mom and the one who was cooking meals for my family, that if I learned how to cook healthier, that was going to benefit them and then their kids you and bet. that was something I could pass down. And so then that's when I really started to make those changes because I saw that motivation. Yeah, and then, then all of a sudden of you don't need to even – you just need to keep that in mind and that in, in and of itself is a major driver. That changes the feelings powerfully. Yeah, yeah, so that's step number two is to, to sit down and write the reasons. Why do you want to get healthy? You know, is it because you're in pain and you don't want to be in pain anymore? 
offer? Is it because you want to prolong your life? Maybe you want to improve the quality of your life. Maybe you want to be happier. Hmm. You know, what are those reasons why you want to do what you want to do? And write them down so you can see them every day. That's right. That helps you remember why you're making the changes. Because when you start doing any change in your life, it's hard at first. So I'm going to go into that a little bit later. Let's but, let's do um, this, Sarah. Let's take a break um, and come back and have you give us the other three ideas, the other three rules or, or kind of keys to uh, strengthening your self-discipline. Sarah Gowans from thehappygal.com. She's teaching us how to get, you know, a habit around being healthier. First basic key ways, shift the paradigm and write the reasons why. Figure out what motivates you. Write them down. Keep them top of mind. We'll come back. More with Sarah Gowans right here on The Matt Townsend Show. friends to the Matt Townsend show. We're talking with Sarah Gowans. Uh, she is the writer and blog manager for the Happy Gal blog and uh, just go to happygal.com. She also loves being active and healthy and enjoys running, cycling, yoga, hiking, anything else that can keep her heart rate. She uh, she's just she's just great and she's trying to figure out a way to get us motivated to be healthier. She's going through a checklist, five things that can, uh, five different steps to help us do that. Shift your thinking. It's not about uh, discipline per se and being beating yourself up. It's about educating. Write the reasons why. Why do you want to do what you want to do? Why do you want to get healthy? Find the motivators. Sarah Gowans, what are the other three things we need to work on? Okay, so step three is to focus on what you become rather than what you want to let go of. And um, so, for example, a lot of time people, I mean, kind of the biggest thing when you think about physical health is people want to lose weight, right? Right. And so they sit there and they think, okay, I want to lose weight. And they just sit there and they focus on that weight that they want to lose and put all their energy towards it. Well, anything that we focus on is going to grow bigger. Right. So so it kind of is, that doesn't work. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) Right. So... Um, what I'm suggesting is you actually focus instead on what you want to become. So I would sit down when you're writing down your motivations for why you want to make changes and get healthy. And again, you can do it with physical. You can also do it with um, emotional. So maybe you want to make a change to be kinder to people. Like maybe you just are grumpy a lot. (laughs) You want to be nicer. And so instead of focusing on, okay, I don't want to be grumpy. I don't want to be grumpy you would say, I want to be kinder and focus on that. There you go. So um, That's appreciative. Yeah, so so I, now you're focusing on what you want, and that's more attractive to us than just avoiding what we don't want. Yeah. Cool. And you're putting your energy towards what you want to become. Yeah. So again, when you're writing down your motivation, I would suggest writing down also, what do you want it to look like? What you are trying to make changes in your life to become, what do you want that to look like? Like, if it's physical, you know, I want to weigh X amount of pounds or yeah. um, I want to feel, you know, a certain way or get rid of this pain or whatever. Well, actually, you don't want to write that because then you're <laughs> focusing on the pain. But right. you get, you get yeah. my point. So 
So you're write it down and then become. and yeah. then focus on the outcome and get a really clear vision of what healthy looks like instead of what unhealthy looks like and then keep focused on that healthy image. Yep. That's cool. And then you're going to be your energy goes towards that and you're going to be moving towards that. That's great. And that's what you're going to create in your life. What's number 4? Um, number 4 is um, to get an accountability partner. And this one really is huge because and anytime I've tried to make changes in my life, if I try to do it strictly on my own, it typically doesn't last because right. I'm not accountable to anybody. And so um, if there's something that I want to do, I'll call up a friend or I'll tell my spouse or whoever and say, okay, look, I just want you to be aware. This is what I'm doing. You know, here's my um, image of what I want it to be. And will you just kind of check in with me and hold me accountable? Because when we do that, it makes the biggest difference. Yep. And then check in, have them like set a time to check in with your accountability partner and, you know, discuss how your progress is going and have them ask you, you know, what changes have you made? Have you noticed any differences? Yeah. Even if and, you're just doing that uh, once every other week, to know mm-hmm. you're going to be accountable and have a check-in, it's a big deal. I yeah, can go a long for way. For me, it makes all the difference because, like I said before, if I – try to do it on my own, it doesn't stick because mm-hmm. I don't have to be accountable. Yeah. So that's a big one. I love that. That's great. Okay. So then step number five, our last step is to, um, we are really big with systems at the Happy Gal because they are awesome. And Jenny Layton, who created the Happy Gal, she came up with an acronym for the word system. And it's S stands for saves, Y is you, then stress, time, energy, money. So that's S-Y-S-T-E-M. Saves you stress, time, energy, and money. And so um, step five would be to implement a system that works for you. So you don't have to, making changes and getting healthier, you think it has to look a certain way, but it, it doesn't have to, it can look however you want it to look. Right. So implement a system that works for you and then be kind to yourself in the process as you're getting there. And that's the other thing that I think um, going along the lines of education versus discipline is as we're going along, sometimes we're so hard on ourselves if we stumble a little or we don't get it right or whatever. And making changes is a hard thing. You actually are creating new neurological pathways that aren't, it's not just the default yet. Yeah, right. And so, in fact, I'll give you an example. So, I always try to like change up things in my day-to-day routine yeah. so that it's, I'm not just kind of doing the same thing mindlessly over and over again. So the other day I switched, um, we have a garbage bin and a recycle bin, one's behind the other. And so I switched them so that one was, the recycling was behind instead of in front. And then I went, so every time we go to throw something in the garbage, we had, I had to stop and think about it because I was used to just throwing it in a certain place. Uh-huh. But now I have to think. make a conscious effort. Yeah. And so that's kind of a silly example, but the point is you can see, like you can almost feel those neurons in your brain trying to like reconnect and go a new way and, and it's hard at first, but then as you become used to that, then it gets easier and easier as those new pathways are formed and then that becomes your new habit. Well, and that's, and think how great that is because then you, once you've done something long enough, you can make the habit about it and then add an additional system. And an additional system. So then all of a sudden you have two or three systems 
and and your brain will then kind of be used to three different ways of being healthy or four different ways and you're doubling up it seems like you're now it's now it's going to be easier it's just more efficient yep exactly and that's the key and so but to be kind to yourself because so many of us beat ourselves up yeah. if we don't do it in the beginning and so that's a big deal to me and we always talk to our clients about um you know give yourself some love as you're going on it's okay if you make a mistake or, you know, stumble if you fall off the wagon for a day or so, just start fresh the next day. It's okay. Oh, that's good. Um, See, you did it again. Look at you. Five points. It's going to work. And they can go to the blog, thehappygal.com. Will you be putting those points up there as well? Yep. We'll create a post so they can go and, you know, review the discussion and look at those points, and it'll be on there. You're the best. Sarah Gallons, appreciate you, and Jenny at thehappygal.com. Go check out that website. Great resource to make you happy and healthier, by the way, on the way. We're going to take a break, my friends, and uh, when we come back, we'll be talking to the guys down at BYU Sports Nation. This is the Matt Townsend Show. By the way, we're going to be doing the Kelchip Test up next on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. It's that time of the show when we like to toss to our good buddies down in Studio B. No, what is it? Studio B? Yeah. Yeah, are you that's stu- correct. Are you guys in Studio B still? We are in the Studio Bizzle. Studio Brigham. B-Dizzle. <laughs> hey, uh, we welcome to the show, by the way. Spencer, Jerem from BYU Sports Nation. We, we always like to set you up uh, <laughs> for a really great opportunity. Today is uh, your day. Do you smell a different aroma Yes. in the studio down there? I do. Does it smell like fuel? Uh, I kind of like that smell. Okay. Yeah, yeah I don't <laughs> mind it, to be honest. I was expecting something just horrific. Well, no, 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 no. This, this is like a culinary Febreze, what you wow. put on this greenage. You know, wait till you taste it. Oh, That's uh, what I'm getting at. Here's the deal. Have, you guys haven't tasted it yet, right? No. no. So on the show, we've brought you, I don't want to brag, but we've brought you a lot of things like the Coca-Cola milk. Mm-hmm. You got to taste that. Tremendous. Uh, it was good, yeah, actually. We, we talked about all of the great Miller Park fare that it goes on at the Milwaukee Brewers um, Arena. Now, beef on a stick. Beef. Beef on a, the famous beef on a stick. <laughs> Today we're talking kale because kale is supposedly the healthiest thing on earth. Wow. I know. And I've never tried it. I have seen it at the buffet uh, as a garnish around all of the other good, healthy, yummy food. And um, here's the deal. Uh, our great producer here, Kaylee Danes, has actually made kale chips. She loves kale. She loves kale chips. So I said, make some for us, bring them in. And we've done a taste test up here. And pretty much uh, two people don't like, uh, two people like, and now we need you two to choose. Okay. So part- partake. I'm scared. It looks healthy. I'm a little worried. And I brought some Ritz I, crackers. Should I, can I garnish it with Ritz crackers? I, no, 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 you can't. Oh. You do not want to, you do not want to lose the moment. <laughs> so hey. Th- throw one back. Here we go. Jerem's going to okay. go first. Here I will. Go. Yep. Oh, okay. Jerem. Jerem is eating. Okay. Jerem is. Oh, super crunchy. Give us play by play. Okay, an explosion of flavor. Okay. What's point. the what is the what's the flavor, Jerem? Well, very crunchy. It's like a chip, but it looks like a piece of lettuce. It's or kale. yeah. What mm-hmm. does it taste like? It, it tastes totally like uh, 
I don't. It's like a barbecue flavor that you put on it, but then the aftertaste of little kale kicks in. It's not bad though. Okay. okay. So Jerem is okay. That's it's a, okay. That's a yeah. four vote. That is so. That is now three to two for the kale I'm chips. I'm going to eat another one. Holy cow! I'm eating now. Okay, here we go. Spent. Wow, Spencer, can you shut your mouth? That was I'm, me. Oh, that, that was, was you, Jerem. I can't not, see you. Of I'm all not the a days, fan. you're not I'm a not, fan. I'm not a fan. No, I'm tasting something like sour aftertaste, almost like vinegar. Mm-hmm. That's the fish. Oh, fish. <laughs> yeah, that's, I'm having that's a an, third. That's an against. Look at that. Oh, see, so we're still tied. And Jerem's, I'm going to have a fourth. Jerem's downing him. Oh, yeah. Jerem, you need to learn to eat with your mouth shut. It's radio. You need to be able to hear the chewing. <laughs> I can actually smell it. Seriously. <laughs> so you're, what did you feel, Spencer? Because when, when I first ate one, I felt like a little boy at scout camp that ate something that I shouldn't have eaten. <laughs> yeah, the aftertaste isn't great, so I'm going to wash this down a little yeah, bit. Yeah, okay. So Jerem explained it like it wasn't that bad. So maybe, I, maybe my expectations were way too high. But when I put it in my mouth and I took two bites, I was like, oh, yeah. oh. Yeah. The kale, yeah. The, I do the not want to swallow this. The flavoring on it. Now you got to finish uh, it. Swayed me. But see, that's just, now that they, it's okay. She can make lemon flavored kale if you want. Mm. She can also uh, Ritz. if you like. Hand me Ritz. If you like worms, oh. <laughs> she can mix it up. This is nothing against if Kaylee. Like, we no. love Kaylee. Yeah, yeah she's no, great. Kaylee's we, fantastic. We a, yeah, we have a long established relationship of uh, like three minutes yeah. of knowing Kaylee for the last three. Months. Well, and having known her now for I don't know two months, uh, yeah, she's fantastic and a great a great cook and it eats so incredibly healthy. What what does she put on these things? What what is is it vinegar? It's actually unleaded fuel. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it tasted like, I like to me. Leaded. Hey, uh, Kaylee, what did you put on it? Maybe come over here, Kaylee. Don't be afraid. Hit that red button. She's she did not want to go on the what air. What makes it tart? What brought up the tartness factor? Um, it's just lime and chili powder. It's lime and, and chili, chili powder. powder. Okay, but keep in mind they sat overnight because I made them yesterday after class. Okay, that yeah, I don't think that's the problem. <laughs> Fair enough. Kaylee, do you eat these every day? Um, I prefer raw kale, so I'll put it in like a quinoa salad or something. But okay, well, let's try raw kale next time. Next time we'll do Are a you... raw kale test. I don't want raw kale. It's good. You put it in the salad. Raw kale. Yeah. See, throw, just drizzle some ranch you dressing over it. Awesome. <laughs> oh the man. Police, man. You know what? This totally went crazy because I didn't know we'd spend the whole time on it. But here's the deal. I think what we realize is now we're it's still a tie. It's, it's still a tie. It's still a tie. So we'll have to go past those around. You don't eat all of those, guys. Okay. <laughs> we yeah, I, will I not quit after four. Hey, I oh, by the way, it's, like, no. it's pro day for BYU football today. There, there's a bunch of guys trying to make Going the NFL. Pro. Yeah. So you, basically, if, dudes in their underwear running around in front of guys that they hope tell someone else they're good, and then they make them. Holy cap. Kaylee just lit up. Kale. Yeah. <laughs> Kaylee, Kaylee's going to take some kale down These guys <laughs> will like the kale chips. They're trying to get healthy. They're all healthy. They're acting like they're healthy so they'll get hired right Is now. Is that what you're, you're going to talk about Pro Day on your show then today? Yes, Pro yep. Day. We've and got Brian Logan at the indoor practice oh, facility. He'll big uh, league. do some big league. You guys. Where BYU fits into the NFL. How Plus, important is it to get guys drafted? Yeah. It's, it's big time. And, again, the tournament's on as well. So we'll have to catch up on that on Monday. That too. Dr. Matt, have a great Friday. You two gentlemen. Go brush your teeth. Get the kale out of your yep. teeth. No time. Before we got the show. Minutes. Good luck. Wow. Uh, Kaylee, so you're a hit. You're really you're, – it's 50-50. And uh, I'm betting those that aren't loving the kale, we're probably not the healthy type. That's fair. Or we have – 
taste. <laughs> that sounds rude. You really did a great job. Do not think that it's in any way about you. <laughs> you know what I think we do need to do? If he's in town, you need to go up. Have you ever met Derek? Derek's upstairs. Derek Markey. He's the big dog. Okay. Okay. Don't worry about it. He's the boss. Gotcha. Take him up to him. Okay. Let Derek be the final decision maker. But no matter what you do, you need to let Derek – Derek needs to try at least four of them. Do I have job security before I – I have try? a feeling just knowing Derek and knowing you, he will love you. He will think you're fantastic. Okay. And he'll probably love the chips because he's a healthy guy. Okay, good. So hopefully he's here. And then we'll report on Monday how that went. Oh, this is great. Great. See, I didn't know we were going to go this way, but this is great. Kale. Mm. It does a body good. And are you okay if I do start a Kale fuel company, KFC? I feel like you might run into some legal issues with it. No, ours is oil and fuel out of Kale, and then it's just in a red and white striped bucket. Okay, when you say it like that, it's not confusing at all. Because we're calling it a bucket of KFC. (laughs) And I'm going to be the Kale commander. And he's the Kale commander. With white hair, white facial hair. Okay. It's going to be great. little white suit. But he's not the colonel. No. no. A, little, a little like, like green a little, yeah, bow tie. A little southern Or just tie. those yeah. little um, – what do they wear? Bolero. What do you call those? Yeah, what are those called? Bolo tie. Yeah, bolo yeah. tie. Yep. Bolero. <laughs> I think that was a movie. Um, so, yeah, KFC. Mm. Good stuff. It does a body good. And that's a whole other brand we're blowing up. Hmm. I just always like to be creative, you know? By taking other people's other brands' ideas and well, what brand? What brand has ever branded Kale Fuel Company? KFC. I don't know. I, you know, we'll just leave one that one out there That's for good. people to mull over. Well, no, I'm trademarking. I'm trademarking it as soon as I can. So it's KFC trademark. Yeah, yeah. In a red bucket, red and white bucket. Okay. Bucket of fuel with a little man. Yeah. Are you calling him a little man? Are you calling James a little man? The the photo of him will be little. Kaylee, don't ever call him little. <laughs> you mean a big strapping man in a white suit. Okay. With a bolo tie. Okay. So, you know, it's Friday. That's, the sh- that's pretty much the show. It's like done. What do we do now? Nap time. <laughs> Nap time. James has got a big weekend coming down the pike. Uh, he's got a lot of um, registries to go look through. He's got to go figure out the food truck. Is he still going to do beef on a stick? Well, that's the thing. We were going to go do donuts, but then with that story of all the baseball food, it's really tempting to do like the mm-hmm. the their nachos. What do they call them? The brachos. The brachos. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you imagine going to a reception and getting some brachos? Like, I love brachos. I feel like that would make the re- wedding reception Let me just tell that much you, more enjoyable. And I think if you advertise on your um, on your uh, card, what do they call that? The invitation? When you send flyer. out your, your, your invitations, are you doing a flyer? Yeah, on billboard advertisements. Wow. Yeah. What kind of wedding is this? Well, we just want to make sure that everyone can partake in the joy. Royalty. Mm-hmm. Big time. Uh, I think when you advertise, if you said brachos available – beef stick and put all of that on the invitation you're going to get a lot of men that are going to want to be there yeah above all 
For your wedding food, you got to make sure the food makes noise. Ah, you want loud, loud food. So I have the brachos on a sizzling. Either sizzling or the chips need to be crispy. (laughs) There's a new study. It's in the Journal of Flavor. Ooh, it's a thing. The Journal of Flavor. Researcher Charles Spence, a professor at Oxford, so it's mm-hmm. it's legit. It's legit there. He uh, did a wide looked at a wide variety of research related to sound and flavor perception. Comes to the conclusion that what food sounds like is incredibly important to the experience of eating it. Totally. Like James, do you have the sound that you used for kale? Put the sound up for kale, and let's just see if we were eating kale, would it would it make would it. Yeah. yeah, there you go. That that really sounds like kale. Oh, yeah. Science has also shown that changing the sound can influence a person's perception of the food. Yeah, right there. For some reason, I'm, I'm not hungry anymore. If you eat a crispy chip mm-hmm. and then you change that sound to, I don't know, a soggy chip, doesn't that change your perception of the food? <laughs> <laughs> it totally does. Oh, did you hear that cow just got really sick? folks that's the show thanks bringing all the information some of it you don't even need but it's just fun to store away this is the matt townsend show remember we couldn't do without you we'll be back uh monday more ideas more tools to help you get uh, a leg up in life take care and live strong over and out